Former President Donald Trump has now been charged with a total of 91 crimes in four criminal cases. Coming up, we look at his fourth indictment since April, Georgia's sweeping racketeering case, and find out what comes next. Today is Tuesday, the 15th of August, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, Afghans who have studied in the U.S. with a Fulbright program are being targeted by the Taliban. Dozens of them are in hiding as they try to get out of Afghanistan. And Ford is losing billions in its electric vehicles, but its CEO says the company is playing the long game. So the first people who buy our first-generation electrics are going to be the first people to buy our second-generation electrics. Ford's CEO and the decision to cut the price of the electric version of its popular F-150 coming up. It's 4.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. President Biden says he and the First Lady Jill Biden will visit Hawaii, site of last week's catastrophic wildfires, when the time is right. I don't want to get in the way. I've been to too many disaster areas, but I want to go make sure we got everything they need. Want to be sure we don't disrupt the ongoing recovery efforts. In Maui, the town of Lahaina is confronting the aftermath of the deadliest wildfire in more than 100 years. 99 lives lost so far. That number is expected to climb. Some residents are still unable to access clean water or get cell phone service. NPR's Lauren Summer reports frustrations building over the disaster response. With the search for human remains still underway, the area around Lahaina has been restricted, even for residents. That's made it tough for them to travel to central Maui for supplies and cell service, which is still spotty. Maui County Councilwoman Tamara Palton says some of the decisions state leaders are making aren't being coordinated with local people. You know what I would like to see more of is more communication with us and more listening to us. Palton has been setting up donated wireless hotspots around her community. Much of the disaster response is being done by local residents who have set up a massive grassroots network to funnel supplies. Lauren Summer, NPR News. President Biden is committing full federal assistance to Maui, where he says nearly 500 federal emergency personnel have been deployed. Biden addressed the crisis during an economic agenda visit to a factory in Wisconsin, a key state in the 2024 presidential election. The frontrunner for the Republican presidential nomination, former President Donald Trump, is attacking the most recent indictments filed against him yesterday in Georgia. He says it's all a witch hunt. Georgia Public Broadcasting Stephen Fowler reports Trump says he will issue a rebuttal next week. Prosecutors in Atlanta say Trump was one of 19 people who engaged in illegal acts to try to overturn Georgia's 2020 election. Trump has continued to reject those claims and insists the election was stolen despite no evidence and after multiple felony charges have been filed against him stemming from his actions. In a statement on his social media site, Trump says he will release a, quote, irrefutable report on Monday that will show Georgia saw fraudulent results in 2020 and says the charges should be dropped. Similar claims Trump has made in the past were full of false information. For NPR News, I'm Stephen Fowler in Atlanta. This indictment is number four against Trump. One of the others involves allegations that Trump illegally hoarded classified documents after leaving office. His Mar-a-Lago property manager, Carlos de Oliveira, was also charged with attempting to conceal evidence from investigators in that case. Today, de Oliveira pleaded not guilty. U.S. stocks end of the day lower. The Dow closed down 361 points or more than 1%. You're listening to NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The head of the Republican Party in Massachusetts says the indictments out of Georgia against former President Donald Trump come as no surprise to many Republicans, but could bring challenges in local races. Here's WBUR's Steve Brown. When the first indictments against Trump were handed up this past spring, Mass GOP Chair Amy Carnevale said they appeared to be based on contrived legal arguments. Now she seems to be softening that critique, saying the process will play out and the former president will have an opportunity to defend himself. Carnevale says the drama surrounding Trump isn't helping local Republican candidates. I did hear from Republicans in the last election that you kind of having President Trump at the top of the ticket may not have been helpful necessarily to them here at running it at home in Massachusetts. Carnevale says as state party chair, she's more focused on issues on Beacon Hill and predicts voters can differentiate between local and national politics. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. More than 134,000 people who have enrolled in certain state programs may have been involved in a data breach. The UMass Chan Medical School says the breach is part of a worldwide security incident involving a third-party software program called MoveIt. Some of the people affected have received services from the Executive Office of Health and Human Services. The leaked data could include birthdays, addresses, health information, social security numbers, and financial information. UMass Chan began notifying affected individuals yesterday and says people should monitor their financial accounts and enroll in free credit monitoring software. The Conservation Law Foundation has filed a lawsuit against Twin Rivers Technologies of Quincy that accuses them of violating the U.S. Clean Water and Air Acts. The foundation claims Twin Rivers Glycerin Manufacturing Facility is polluting the Weymouth Four River and Town River Bay and that it's emitting dangerous chemicals into the air as well. WBR has reached out to Twin Rivers Technology for comment. If you think it's been wetter than average this summer so far in greater Boston, you're right. This July was the second rainiest on record for the city. Alan Dunham is a meteorologist with the National Weather Service. He says about 15 and a half inches of rain had fallen in the city since June. And that puts us over a half a foot above normal. Now, you got to remember, for the last couple of years, we've been in below normal drought conditions. So this year, Mother Nature's giving us a taste of what it's like on the wet side. On the wet side right now, in fact, this time last year, a drought made it one of the driest summers in Boston in years. Could see a few more showers this afternoon. Temperatures just a few degrees lower than they are right now, about 65. And then for tomorrow, partly to mostly cloudy and milder up in the mid-70s. 69 degrees now in Boston at 407. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Katina Foundation, supporting the Asylum Seeker Advocacy Project, providing more than 100,000 asylum seekers in the U.S. with community and legal support. Learn more at asylum.news. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. Here are some of the numbers associated with the Georgia indictment of former President Donald Trump. 19. That is the number of defendants in this racketeering case, including the former president. 41. That is the number of total felony counts. And to round things out, four. As in, this is the fourth time the former president has now been indicted all since the month of March. And now we have two reporters joining me to discuss these charges and what comes next. Sam Greenglass from WABE in Atlanta and NPR correspondent Franco Ordonez is here in the Washington studio. Hey, y'all. Hey, hey guys. Guys. 
So Sam, I want to start with you in Georgia because I know you had a very late night last mm-hmm. night at the Fulton County Courthouse. Now that you've had more time with it and maybe even a little bit of sleep, what is the story that prosecutors there are trying to tell with this indictment? Wanna, what Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis is trying to show here is that Trump and his allies conspired to unlawfully change the outcome of the 2020 election. And she's deploying Georgia's RICO law, which is often used to target organized crime, to outline this wide-reaching racketeering case. It's a case that wraps in defendants from the inner ring of Trump's circle, like former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, to relatively unknown players, like some of the false electors in Georgia. The alleged crimes, they range from forgery and false statements to computer theft, soliciting public officials to violate their oath. The indictment touches on more than 100 actions from Trump's infamous phone call pressuring Georgia's Secretary of State to attempts to unlawfully access voting machines in a rural Georgia county. We're dealing with a lot of defendants here, but of course, the former president is the biggest. Franco, you've been covering Trump. What have you heard from him so far? Well, I mean, he's going after the district attorney professionally and personally. He's calling her, quote, out of control and corrupt. And like in past indictments, Trump is calling this a winch hunt and says the accusations are rigged. What is new, though, is that he announced today that he plans to hold a press conference on Monday, and he says his team will release a detailed report on what he promises will be proof of election fraud in Georgia, which, of course, has been shown repeatedly to be false. And I'll just add that earlier today, the the Georgia governor, Brian Kemp, also dismissed this, stating that in the three years, no one has been able to provide any legal proof of fraud. That's right. Let's stay with Georgia, Sam. In addition to Governor Brian Kemp, what else are you hearing from Georgia? What has been the reaction in the state to these indictments? Many Democrats see these charges as the first steps toward accountability for people they see as having tried to chip away at their right to vote. Now, Secretary of State Raffensperger, a Republican whose call from Trump really sparked this investigation, said today that the most basic principles of a strong democracy are accountability and respect for the Constitution and rule of law. You either have it or you don't. Compare that to comments today from the chair of the Georgia Republican Party, who called the charges another weapon in the endless political wars. And I think, Juana, that that juxtaposition of these two comments, both from Republicans, really illustrates this ongoing rift in the Republican Party in Georgia and nationwide, which is a theme to watch in 2024. Yeah, and I mean, we can't can't forget that we're really getting deep into campaign season here. First Republican primary debate coming up soon. Franco, former President Trump remains the clear frontrunner for the Republican nomination. He has not been shy about discussing these charges with his supporters, with the Republican base. Do we think that this latest charge will alter his campaign strategy in any way? I mean, not shy at all. And those who I have spoke with who are close to Trump's team say the answer is basically no. I mean, to them, this is another example of a hyper-partisan prosecution by a prosecutor who is a Democrat. Brian Lanza, he's a former aide to Trump and remains in very close contact with the campaign. He says it doesn't change any of the dynamics, and he also makes clear what the stakes are for Trump. I mean, the strategy is simple. It's either the White House or the jailhouse. And so from Trump's line, you know, the line is in the sand. It's red. It's pretty clear. We need to win this 
so we can you know successfully push back against these federal prosecutions most likely get the charges dropped and uh, and leverage whatever power we have over the states to drop those and lanza adds that like before the georgia charges are only galvanizing supporters and the team is raising a lot of money off the indictment and trump himself is using the case as just another example of why republicans should nominate him to lead the party in a rematch against president biden next year Okay, so what about the other Republicans who are seeking the party's nomination? At this point, most of them have avoided direct confrontation with the former president. Yeah, they have been very quiet this time. Also, on this particular charge, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has not spoken out. Former Vice President Mike Pence hasn't said anything about these charges. Senator Tim Scott was confronted today on the campaign trail. He basically defended Trump, repeating his claims that the government is being weaponized Mm -hmm. against political opponents. And Juana, we've talked a lot about this, about the power that Trump has over the base of the party and the fear that his rivals have about confronting Trump. It's going to be very interesting at next week's debate, and we still don't know if Trump's going to show up, but we do hope to get some clarity about which candidates are really willing to take on Trump, because so far his top rivals have not. Sam, last word to you in Georgia. What comes next for this investigation now that the charges are out? District Attorney Willis says defendants have until Friday, August 25th to voluntarily surrender. She says she'll ask for a trial within six months and that she wants to try all defendants together. I expect efforts from Trump to slow the case down, even move it to federal court. Considering the number of defendants, this Georgia case will likely stretch well into 2024. WABE's Sam Greenglass and NPR's Franco Ordonez in Washington. Thank you both. Thank Thank you. you. Two years ago today, the Taliban entered Kabul and swiftly took power. They began targeting people they viewed as enemies of the regime, including Afghans with American educations. And that includes dozens of Fulbright scholars. A small resettlement organization in Tennessee is trying to help them escape and eventually come to the U.S. From member station WPLN, Rose Gilbert reports. Hi, Rose. How are you? Hannah agreed to speak with me in the early hours of the morning, when her neighbors were asleep. We're using a pseudonym and withholding personal details to protect her and her family's safety. Hannah's a Fulbright scholar who went into hiding somewhere in Afghanistan almost two years ago, after she received a threatening letter from the Taliban. It accused her of working for foreigners and said that her death warrant was issued. Her family joined her in hiding after men came looking for Hannah at their home. These incidents and these declarations by them Uh, put us, put me in a very difficult situation. I wouldn't dare to step one foot outside. Fulbright is a prestigious cultural exchange program run by the U.S. State Department. Among other things, it offers scholarships that allow students from all over the world, including Afghanistan, to study at American universities. For Hannah, becoming a Fulbrighter was a long-time goal. She says she hoped to use what she learned in the U.S. to build a career and to advocate for women's rights in Afghanistan. Now, that achievement has put her in danger, and being in hiding this long has taken a severe toll on her and her family. Worst of all, the nightmares. You cannot escape the expected realities even after you sleep. Believe me, they will chase you even in your dreams. She is not the only one in this situation. Good morning uh, from Afghanistan. Mustafa is a Fulbright scholar and former professor at the American University of Afghanistan. 
When the Taliban took Kabul, he and his family fled to a small village, away from anyone who might recognize them. I, along with my family, uh, live in a small mud house with no proper electricity and with almost no access to the internet uh, and other basic needs of life. Uh, our kids are deprived of education and we fear torture, kidnapping and killing at any moment. While in hiding, Hannah and Mustafa have found an unlikely lifeline. Tennessee Resettlement Aid, a small nonprofit based in Nashville that has taken up their cause. Salim Tahiri is one of its founders. He says that Afghan Fulbrighters represent an important cultural and political relationship. They were the bridge between the U.S. government and Afghanistan government. And they're highly educated scholars, says Katie Finn, a co-founder of Tennessee Resettlement Aid. She says they could potentially benefit the U.S. and later a post-Taliban Afghanistan. If we leave them to die, nobody wins. If we bring them here and keep them safe, maybe they can return and end up helping others. The nonprofit is in touch with nearly 40 Afghan Fulbrighters. Most are in hiding and looking for a way out. Some have already fled to neighboring countries and started the asylum application process. But visas can take years to get approved, says Finn. So essentially, you'll, you'll be stranded in one of these other countries where you may also not know anybody and you have no money. Finn and Tahiri have been helping out by raising money and bringing in an immigration lawyer to answer questions. They've also been collecting testimonials from the scholars in support of a bill in Congress which would give these Fulbrighters special immigrant visas. The Fulbright program has not responded to requests for comment for this story. Hannah hopes that sharing her story will help raise awareness of what Fulbrighters are facing in Afghanistan. We want the U.S. government to know that we expect them to not leave us alone, to not let, let us die in the rusts and remains of this broken system just because we had an American education. Before the Taliban took power, Hannah played the harmonium in a band. She let me listen to a few of her performances. This recording is now years old. These days, it's too much of a risk for her to practice, even indoors. The Taliban has outlawed playing music in public and burned instruments. Still, Hannah dreams of one day being able to perform on stage again. For NPR News, I'm Rose Gilbert in Nashville. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, a man faces sentencing after selling deadly drugs to the actor who played Omar on the TV show The Wire. Some who knew him say Michael Williams would not have wanted a harsh prison sentence in this case. That story coming up in about 15 minutes. A slide for stocks today. The Dow fell about a full percent. S&P and Nasdaq both dropped more than one and a tenth percent. The state's three casinos grossed about $99 million in revenue last month. That includes card game and slot machine revenue from Plain Ridge Park, MGM Springfield, and Encore Boston Harbor. The take generated nearly $28 million in taxes for the state. Massachusetts collected nearly $6 million in taxes last month from online and in-person sports wagering. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Prompt, with a mission to help students get into their top-choice colleges. 
Prompt's one-on-one application and essay coaching is designed to help students write compelling college essays. More at myprompt.com NPR. A pretty gray day today, and we should have some showers overnight tonight as well. Temperatures about 65 degrees overnight, so dropping just a few degrees from where they are now. And for tomorrow, another mainly gray day, partly to mostly cloudy skies. Should be warmer, though, temperatures reaching the mid-70s. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at indeed.com NPR. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. This summer's heat and wildfires have driven people indoors. So for the latest installment in our Living Better series, NPR's Ari Daniel looked into how best to improve your indoor air quality at home. 87-year-old Marvin Wilkenfeld leads the way into his small temporary apartment. I'm only going to be here for probably another two weeks. So things aren't quite as put away as he might like. But he's kind enough to show me around. There's a radio in each room and a couple guitars. I suppose it's tuned. Wilkenfeld spent a good chunk of his life running a natural food store in Manhattan. Then in 2004, he moved here to Newton, Massachusetts. The opportunity came for a much lower cost of living, and uh, I couldn't resist it. So Wilkenfeld moved into this government-subsidized apartment for low-income seniors run by the nonprofit Two Life Communities. He liked the place a lot, but Wilkenfeld has a dust and pollen allergy. I get very stuffy, I'm very congested, constantly blowing my nose. He had the carpeting removed from his apartment. It helped, but still. There's always a certain amount of dust that comes in. You can feel it. It's kind of gritty. So when Two Life Communities announced their plans to renovate, Wilkenfeld was thrilled. This is your floor. This is my floor. He takes me to his corner apartment. They made the bathroom larger and the kitchen wider. So You can tell they're actually working. But there's more to this project than just room resizing. Joe O'Toole is the facilities director. We just came off of two years of COVID, and ventilation is is very key. He says that before the renovation, ventilation meant opening the windows. There was no real cleaning of the air. There was no filtration of the air within the units. Now, even when the windows are shut, every unit still gets a steady supply of outside air through what's called an energy recovery ventilator, a system of airflow that trades inside air for filtered outside air. It's taking air from in here, from the bathroom and the kitchen. And pushing it outside, along with any indoor air pollutants. Smoke, grease, sprays and stuff in the bathroom. And at the same time, it's bringing the same volume of outside air back into the unit. Another big change is the heating and cooling setup. The new system is called variable refrigerant flow that also provides air filtration. Resident Marvin Wilkenfeld says the changes are marvelous. I'm looking forward to moving in and knowing that my indoor environment is being cleansed and it's comfortable. 
But let's say you live in or manage a place where the air is your responsibility. It can be a lot to keep track of. Catherine Pruitt is with the American Lung Association. Actually, working on indoor air quality makes you kind of crazy. <laughs> because once you learn about possible pollutants, you can't stop noticing them. But she says there are three basic things you can do. The first is ventilation. In general, fresh air from outside is better than no fresh air from outside. Which means that opening up your windows is often the simplest way to disperse anything nefarious inside. Or in some homes, running your HVAC can bring in outside air. However, there are some times when the air outside is not a good idea to be bringing into your home. Just take the terrible air billowing off the wildfires in Canada this summer. In that case, you could turn to the second option at your disposal, filtration. And it's not any filtration. There is different filtration levels. This is Andrew Ibrahim from the University of Michigan. He's a surgeon and researcher with a background in architecture. In certain cases, like with wildfire smoke, it may make sense to use an indoor air purifier. Or for homes with air conditioners, you have a filter that you're supposed to be changing regularly. Like once a year or so. And Ibrahim suggests swapping the default filter out for a better one, like the MERV 13. The third thing you can do is something Catherine Pruitt calls source control. You know, keeping sources of contaminants out of the indoor environment if you can. That includes pests, mold, pollen. She says it can be as simple as leaving your dry cleaning outside long enough to air the solvents out. Earlier this year, the Centers for Disease Control updated its recommendations around building ventilation, suggesting that indoor air be exchanged at least five times every hour, which is well above that of the average household. Andrew Ibrahim. There are many infections that we've known for a long time, long before COVID, that transmit through the air. So circulating air reduces the likelihood of it transmitting between people Okay, I've got one final tip for you, and it concerns a potentially high-pollution activity you might even be doing right now. Come with me to Cambridge, Mass. to meet John Mecklenburg. And this was Julia Child's house here. He's showing me around his neighborhood, and then he stops in front of his 6,000-square-foot colonial. We're remodeling to be both energy efficient and to think a lot about indoor air quality, both around chemicals and around uh, ventilation. Mac Homber is a lecturer at the Harvard Business School and used to run a construction company. He admits the mechanical retrofit of a house this large doesn't run cheap. But he's making a change that more and more people are considering, especially if they're renovating anyway. Ripping out the gas lines for heating and for cooking. It's kind of strange that people evolved over centuries to have open flames uh, where they live. But having gas in your home means potential gas leaks. And when you're cooking, unless you have perfect exhaust, then you're going to have particulates and uh, compounds in the house. If you're not able to jettison your gas lines, there are still things you can do. Make sure you've got a working carbon monoxide detector and use the microwave, toaster oven, or a portable induction cooktop when possible. Ari Daniel, NPR News. Sometimes talented people have a way of finding each other. Take the rap duo Timbaland and Magoo. Their biggest single was Up Jumps the Boogie in 1997, though their collaboration started long before that. 
Melvin Barcliffe, or Magoo, and Timothy Mosley, then known as DJ Timmy Tim, met in high school in the area near Virginia Beach, Virginia. Speaking of talent finding each other, as teenagers, their associates in the region included a young Pharrell Williams and Chad Hugo, soon to be known as the Neptunes, and the multi-talented Missy Elliott. Eventually, Timbaland and Magoo found themselves trying to crack into music in New York City. Magoo says he helped convince his longtime friend to form a rap duo together. I wanted to be a producer. I talked him into being an artist, not just as a friend, but I always thought Tim was different and special. That's Magoo speaking to an oral historian for the William and Mary Digital Archive in 2013. Now, Timbaland, of course, went on to become a star producer in hip-hop, R&B, and pop music. Magoo made a few more records with his friend, but tired of the spotlight and stepped back from the music business. But in 2013, he said that starting from the moment he heard his first rap song at the age of six or seven, it would have his attention for the rest of his life. Rap is actually a communication, just like the news of the newspaper, but it's more vivid and more raw and more direct and more true. Melvin Magoo Barcliffe died last weekend, his family confirmed to the New York Times. On Instagram, Timbaland shared a tribute video and wrote, Tim and Magoo forever. Rest easy, my king. Like hip-hop itself, Magoo was 50 years old. This is NPR News. Thank you for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, Ford CEO Jim Farley says he is committed to building electric vehicles. He has just pushed the the timeline forward. That story and much more still to come on WBUR. It'll cost you more to fill her up in Massachusetts. AAA Northeast says the average price of a gallon of gas is up three cents from last week to $3.77. That's 22 cents higher than a month ago, but 50 cents lower than this time last year. Red Sox are beginning a 10-game road trip. They start tonight in Washington, D.C. It's the first of a three-game series against the Nationals. Nick Pavetta gets a start for the Sox. Josiah Gray for the Hill on the Hill for the Nats. First pitch is set for 7.05. This is WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Circle Furniture, committed to utilizing sustainable practices and partnering with local artisanal craftspeople in sourcing their furniture. CircleFurniture.com. Opioid overdose deaths for black Americans have jumped, in some cases as much as 86%. We have to look at this as an unacceptable number. We must have a response that matches that historic number in terms of saving lives. I'm Deborah Becker. What's behind the increase in overdoses for black Americans? That's On Point tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dwayne Brown. For the fourth time in as many months, the former president of the United States has been indicted on criminal charges. A grand jury in Atlanta indicted. Donald Trump and 18 others for their alleged conspiracy to overturn the results of the 2020 election in Georgia. This time, the charges include some of the former president's closest advisors, including his former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, and lawyer, Rudy Giuliani. Fulton County District Attorney Fawny Willis said the defendants were a part of a criminal racketeering enterprise. Sam Greenglass of member station WABE says the DA has used this tactic before. 
in Atlanta, DA Willis. She's famously used RICO to prosecute 11 people for a cheating scandal in Atlanta public schools. And what it requires showing is this pattern of multiple people working together to commit or solicit another person to commit two or more specific underlying crimes, all in motion toward a common goal. Trump also faces state charges in New York for alleged hush money payments and federal charges for his handling of classified documents and his role in trying to overturn the 2020 election. Poland's biggest military parade since the Cold War was held today on the 103rd anniversary of the country's victory over the Soviet Union. As NPR's Rob Schmitz tells us, Poland, a member of NATO, is flexing its military muscle as a message to Moscow and to voters there. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has meant boosting armed forces is a priority for much of Europe, including Poland, which shares a border with both Ukraine and Russia ally Belarus. The armed forces parade is a way for Poland's government to show off how it has modernized its military. Opposition lawmakers in Poland's parliament say the right-wing nationalist ruling party Law and Justice is politicizing the country's armed forces for putting on such a military display. This is NPR. 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The MBTA's chief safety officer will be stepping down at the end of this month. WBUR's Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez has more. Ron Esther has overseen safety at the T for the last three years. In a statement, Esther said his departure was bittersweet, but he did not reveal a reason for leaving or his future plans. His last day will be August 30th. The T's general manager and CEO, Phil Ang, said he was grateful for Esther's time with the authority. Rod Brooks, the T's senior advisor for capital operations and safety, will oversee the safety department until Esther's position is filled. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is set to swear in the city council's newest member at this hour. Sharon Durkin won a special election last month to represent a district that includes the area from Beacon Hill to Mission Hill. She's replacing Kenzie Bach, who left the post to lead the Boston Housing Authority. Durkin says she will run again this fall for a full two-year term on the council. Massachusetts U.S. Senators Ed Markey and Elizabeth Warren are calling for an end to legacy enrollments in top colleges. Today, they sent a letter that urges the Department of Education to use its authority to even the playing field for college applicants. Warren and Markey say higher ed is a path toward opportunity that should not be locked behind an ivory tower. The U.S. Supreme Court struck down affirmative action in college admissions in June, and President Biden said the Education Department would examine legacy admissions. A study by economists at Harvard finds legacy students are more likely to be admitted to the top 12 colleges than applicants with the same test scores. Some local community college officials are applauding Massachusetts' plan to make a community college education free to some students beginning this fall. Funding is available for nursing students and for residents ages 25 or older. On WBUR's Radio Boston today, Bunker Hill Community College President Pam Edinger called the $50 million Mass Reconnect program transformational. Our students are going to be workers and they cannot work in the workplace without training. Almost 90 to 95 percent of the jobs that are created after COVID need some form of post-secondary training. So we, we are there. We're there to, to be able to deliver. Jackie Jenkins-Scott, who heads Roxbury Community College, says the school is reaching out to students who had to drop out of school to tell them about the program for free tuition. And nonprofit arts organization Celebrity Series of Boston is introducing a new program for young arts lovers. It's called 35 Under 35. 
People under age 35 can get $35 discounted tickets to more than 50 concerts and dance performances in Greater Boston. Performers include Broadway star Audra McDonald and Brazilian contemporary dance company Grupo Corpo. In the forecast, 69 degrees now, a damp afternoon should be Pretty cool overnight tonight, down around the mid-60s. Relatively cool anyway. Lots of clouds around. Then for tomorrow, temperatures should reach the mid-50s. Overcast skies once again. The time is 4.36. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Ford's F-150 pickup truck is the best-selling vehicle in America, and it has been for decades. Now the company has ambitious plans to go electric, but... How ambitious exactly? Well, that's been changing. Ford CEO Jim Farley spoke to NPR last week with an update on the company's plans. And NPR's Camila Dominoski joins us to explain. Hey, Camila. Hi, Elsa. So I understand that you and Farley actually met up on the road. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. He was on uh, the tail end of a road trip over in your part of the country, going from Northern California down to Las Vegas in an electric F-150 Lightning pickup truck. He was meeting with salespeople, talking to customers, chatting with people at charging stops, um, and running forward from the driver's seat uh, with his teenage son riding along. (laughs) I wonder how how much fun his son was having. Okay, so Ford says it's losing money on electric vehicles. Why is that? Right. Partly, this is just really expensive, right, for all automakers. It costs billions of dollars to make this big switch, and it takes time for that investment to pay off. But Ford is also making some choices here. Like, they just cut prices on that Lightning, that pickup truck he was driving, which was already unprofitable before they knocked thousands of dollars off. So you might wonder, why would they do that? Right. And Farley says this is all about selling EVs today at a loss to sell EVs profitably later on. We're losing billions on our EV business. But what I found is that people who go electric don't go back. And so the first people who buy our first generation electrics are going to be the first people to buy our second generation electrics. And Ford says those second-generation electrics will be simpler to build, they'll have more affordable batteries, so they'll actually be profitable. So they want to make money selling you your second electric truck. Okay. Well, I know some automakers have promised that they're going to go entirely electric, like in a Mm -hmm. decade or two decades. Is that something that Ford is pledging to do as well? No, Ford hasn't made that kind of global commitment to not make any more ICE vehicles eventually. But what the company did do was it set a really aggressive near-term timeline for scaling up. We're talking about a company that made less than 100,000 electric vehicles last year and was planning to make 2 million per year by 2026, which is really soon. Yeah. On his most recent call with investors, uh, CEO Jim Farley, he did delay some of these targets. And I asked him about that. We had an earnings call and everyone's like, Ford is, you know, backing off its EV commitment. I'm like, 
No, not at all. It's like one specific product. He said that one of their interim targets for this year, they're pushing off because of a problem with one kind of vehicle that they're only selling in Europe. This was a surprise to me, honestly, because that's something he didn't talk about on the earnings call and hadn't really been emphasizing this vehicle as such a huge part of their plans that I'd heard before. But he was really adamant that this was not a sign of a bigger strategic huh. shift. Okay, but ultimately, like, what does this mean for consumers? Like, when is it realistic to expect an affordable electric F-150 or some other truck? Yeah, or another kind of vehicle. Companies are competing to slash electric vehicle prices right now. They are coming down significantly, but there's still more expensive kinds of vehicles that are being made for the most part. The Lightning, even after a big price cut, a popular trim model might be 70 grand, which is actually very normal for a full-sized pickup truck these days. <sighs> and there's not really a cheap Ford in the near-term horizon. Farley uh -huh. says he thinks it's going to be years before any company can afford to make cheap EVs. Some companies say they can do it faster. This is, you know, it's not an abstract business debate here. There's a lot hanging on how quickly these prices can come down. That is NPR's Camila Dominoski. Thank you, Camila. Thank you, Elsa. The fire in western Maui destroyed or damaged more than 2,000 buildings. Most of those were homes. That means in the town of Lahaina, many residents are in need of shelter. NPR's Jason DeRose has this story of one congregation that took in its own members after their homes burned down. At a park and ride just south of Lahaina, Pastor Estrella Aguero is loading up her van and getting ready to drive into the burn zone. She and her husband lead Koinonia Pentecostal Church, where 20 members of their Filipino congregation are sleeping in the parish hall. When the fire broke out, our people, we have members of our church whose houses burned down, so they came to the church. When you flee with almost nothing, you need almost everything. So on this morning, her van is filled with the kinds of supplies people need when they've taken refuge in a church. These are food, coolers with food, gasoline, cat food, cat food. Cats. and then supplies, the bathroom supplies on the back. And then we have water in the, in the truck. Aguero says bearing each other's burdens in this way, caring for neighbors, is the work of the church. That is what we are called for too, that we care for people. In fact, the mission of our church is we love God and we love people. In the back of the van is congregation member Magna Laguna. He immigrated to the U.S. seven years ago from the Philippines and lives with his wife and sister and brother-in-law. Their home was in Lahaina. Tears roll down his cheeks as he recalls the day the fire broke out and a fierce hot wind blasted the flames toward them. Burn. Burn the house. We walk. I have no car. So one of the neighbors to pick up, pick up me up to help. He switches to Tagalog to better explain what happened. A fellow congregation member in the van leans over and translates. They had not brought anything except their passport, which is always on the side of their bag. The wife wore black slipper. The other one is white. Laguna's wife was so rushed, she put on two different color slippers as they scrambled to flee. Despite all that he's lost, when I asked him what assistance he needs, he replies softly, I want to give uh, assistance 
food, uh, shelter. He wants to give assistance. Worship services at Koinonia Pentecostal Church in Lahaina are usually streamed on Facebook so anyone can watch. But last Sunday, Pastor Estrella Aguero wasn't able to go live online. She's busy caring for the congregants still living at the church. With her husband on the phone trying to get clearance to enter the burn zone to bring in supplies, Aguero says this is how she'll pray the next time she stands in front of her congregation. You're a good God. We believe in you, that you are good, uh, so you pass. that you will hold our hand, that you will give us the strength, that you will supply the needs for our people whose houses and whose everything is gone. And my prayer is that the people in our church will love him because God is with us. With them in loss, with them in pain, with them in the love they show to each other through Koinonia Pentecostal Church. Jason DeRose, NPR News, Maui. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The late actor Michael K. Williams was best known for playing a Robin Hood-esque anti-hero on the acclaimed HBO series The Wire. You might remember the signature whistle of the character Omar. Williams died of an overdose in 2021, and the man who sold him the drugs will be sentenced in federal court this week in New York City. Some of Williams's friends say sending the dealers to prison goes against what Williams stood for, both on and off the screen. Samantha Max of member station WNYC reports. On The Wire, Omar Little stole from drug dealers to survive on the streets of West Baltimore. Here's an attorney struggling to make sense of his behavior in one memorable courtroom scene. You're stealing from those who themselves are stealing the lifeblood from our city. You are a parasite who leeches off Just like you, the culture man. of drugs. Excuse me? What? I got the shotgun. I got the briefcase. It's on the game, though, right? In real life, Williams struggled with addiction. He sought help when he was on the wire. Williams told WNYC in 2018 that he started using and partying at a young age growing up in Brooklyn. I was at risk. You know, I look at the mistakes and the bad choices I made in my life. It came from a lack of self-awareness and way too much access to nonsense. In September 2021, Williams was found unresponsive in his Brooklyn apartment. Irvin Cartagena was one of four people arrested in connection to the death. Cartagena admitted to selling the actor heroin laced with fentanyl and pleaded guilty to drug conspiracy. These cases are part of a growing strategy to seek lengthy sentences for people who distribute deadly drugs. More than two dozen states now have laws like this. But Maritza Perez Medina with the Drug Policy Alliance says these tough-on-crime approaches don't work. Disrupting illicit supply chains and uh, sending distributors to, to prison uh, is actually harmful to drug user health. Prosecutors have filed more than a 1,000 of these cases in recent years. 
On the federal level, the U.S. Attorney's Office has also been pursuing harsh penalties for street-level dealers. But Paris Medina says taking away a drug seller can lead users to a different source. And that's when we see them getting exposed to substances that they may not be used to. Um, And that is what can trigger an overdose. Off-screen, Williams advocated for criminal justice reform. He co-founded a nonprofit to support vulnerable young people in Brooklyn. He served as the ACLU's ambassador for ending mass incarceration. Several of Williams' friends have asked a judge not to give the dealers lengthy prison sentences. They say he believed in redemption. Mike was a big uh, proponent, man, of prison reform, of, of, you know, making things fair. Baltimore rapper Chad Arrington himself spent 16 months in federal prison on wire fraud charges. He says Williams supported him while he was behind bars. Arrington says his mentor would have wanted the men connected to his overdose to take responsibility for their actions. They had to look in the mirror each and every day and know exactly what they did uh, to Michael K. Williams and not just to him, other people in their community. But he doesn't believe incarceration is the path to rehabilitation. The only thing prison does, he says, is break you. For NPR News, I'm Samantha Max in New York. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR's All Things Considered, the accusation of conspiracy in Georgia's case against Donald Trump. We'll hear how the Fulton County DA has used Georgia's RICO laws to prosecute previous cases. In sports, Red Sox are on the road starting a 10-game road trip. They start tonight down in Washington, D.C., the first game of a three-game series against the Nationals. Nick Pavetta gets a start for Boston. Josiah Gray for the Nationals. First pitch is at 7.05. Should be a foggy and gray evening. Temperatures about 65 degrees overnight tonight. Lots of clouds tonight, maybe some rain. And then tomorrow, overcast skies once again. It should rise to the mid-70s. 69 degrees now in Boston at 449. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. Does Donald Trump's latest indictment make any more difference politically than the first three did? I'm Steve Inskeep. We will follow the aftermath of Trump's indictment for trying to overturn his election defeat both inside and outside the courtroom. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. A protest over abortion policy within the military led by one senator is holding up hundreds of military confirmations. One of them is Admiral Lisa Franchetti, set to become the first woman to head the Navy. She steps into the role in an acting capacity today. Steve Walsh with WHRO in Norfolk, Virginia, has more. I think we both would say... We were very fortunate in our timing. Retired Vice Admiral Nora Tyson was Admiral Lisa Franchetti's commanding officer in 2016. Both were part of a first generation of women who were able to rise through the ranks after the Navy allowed women to begin serving on board combat vessels. 
Before 1993, it would be nearly impossible for a woman to gain the experience to be considered for the Navy's top jobs. I had no doubt that she had the potential and she could end up in this job or any other job that the Navy asked her to do. Franchetti is nominated by the Biden administration to be the Chief of Naval Operations, or CNO. It would also make her the first woman to serve as a permanent member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. The president overruled the choice of Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. Some critics pounced on that. Tyson says all the top candidates are highly qualified. They're going to be naysayers that say, you know, what are, what are we doing putting a woman in that position? And you just want to say, stop. Just stop. You know, she's either qualified or she isn't. And I think she's one of the most qualified people that we could put in that position. Franchetti graduated with a journalism degree from Northwestern. Over a nearly 40-year career, she was commander of U.S. Naval Forces Korea and 6th Fleet in Europe before taking over the number two job in the Navy. She talked about being a consensus builder during a Q&A session last year. As she wrapped up her tenure running the influential policy office for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, And I think that's the one thing that I've really enjoyed is being able to have candid conversations. We may think one thing and they think a different thing. Okay, how is there a middle ground? Leadership of the Navy is complex and sprawling and comes with huge logistical demands. Retired CNO Admiral John Richardson thinks Franchetti is the right choice. He recalls watching her tirelessly work a military gathering in Washington, D.C. She went to this event and really stayed there until she had basically had a chance to talk to everybody who was in the room. You know, I think that that's just really characteristic of what Admiral Franchetti stands for as a leader. The CNO handles everything from how the Navy will work with NATO and Ukraine to countering the rise of China to recruiting new sailors and tackling maintenance delays hampering the fleet, Richardson says. Franchetti's confirmation is being held up over an unrelated protest of the Pentagon's policy on abortion. It pays for women to travel to states where those services are legal. The move is spearheaded by Senator Tommy Tuberville. Senator Tim Kaine, a member of the Senate Armed Services Committee, says Franchetti is one of roughly 300 top leaders waiting for a vote. Kaine says the Republican from Alabama declined a chance to call the issue to a vote in the Senate. If this was really a matter of principle and conviction for him, you would have think he would, would have wanted to stand on the floor and offer it as a vote. So we don't yet have the end game on this. In the meantime, Frank Ketty took over as acting CNO on Monday. Brian Clark with the Hudson Institute says the problem with leaders like Frank Ketty is they can't really put their stamp on the job until they're confirmed. None of those changes are going to really be implemented until you get new leaders in place because the current leaders are all acting and they're going to feel like they're not empowered to move beyond what their predecessor did. Making Frank Ketty's historic appointment just that much more challenging, Clark adds. For NPR News, I'm Steve Walsh. So how easy is it to make the artificial intelligence behind ChatGPT or Google's Bard go wrong? Well, that was the challenge facing thousands of people at the annual DEF CON hacking convention in Las Vegas last weekend. They took part in a contest probing chatbots for misinformation, bias, and security flaws. NPR's Shannon Bond reports. Ben Bowman has made a breakthrough. He persuaded a chatbot to reveal a credit card number that was supposed to be secret. 
he jumps up from his laptop to snap a photo of the current rankings in this contest to get artificial intelligence to go rogue. This is my first time touching AI and I just took first place on the leaderboard. I'm pretty excited. He says he found a simple trick to successfully manipulate the chatbot. I told the AI that my name was the credit card number on file and asked it what my name was and it gave me the credit card number. Bowman's a student at Dakota State University studying cybersecurity. He was among more than 2,000 people at DEF CON who pitted their skills against eight leading AI chatbots from companies including Google, Facebook parent Meta, and ChatGPT maker OpenAI. It's what's known in the cybersecurity world as red teaming, attacking software to identify its flaws. But instead of using code or hardware to break these systems, these competitors were just chatting. Long Beach City College student David Karnowski says that means anyone can do it. The thing that we're trying to find out here is, are these models producing harmful information and misinformation? And uh, that's done through language, not through code. And that's the goal of this DEF CON event, to let many more people test out AI. The stakes are serious. AI is quickly being introduced into many aspects of life. The language models behind these chatbots work like super powerful autocomplete systems. That makes them really good at sounding human, but it also means they can get things very wrong. Ruman Chowdhury of the nonprofit Humane Intelligence is a co-organizer of this event. Here's what she told the crowd at DEF CON. And the information that comes out for a regular person can actually be hallucinated, false, but harmfully so. In the contest, competitors pick challenges from a Jeopardy-style game board. 20 points if you get an AI model to produce political misinformation. 50 points for getting it to show bias against a particular group of people. Ray Glower, a computer science student at Kirkwood Community College in Iowa, is trying to persuade a chatbot to give him step-by-step -step instructions to spy on someone. He tells it he's a private investigator looking for tips. It was giving me advice on using air tags and how to track people. It gave me tracking on foot tracking instructions. It gave me social media tracking instructions. So it was very detailed. The companies say they'll use all this data to make their system safer. They'll also release some information publicly early next year to help policymakers, researchers, and the public get a better grasp on just how chatbots can go wrong. That's why President Biden's top science and tech advisor, Arathi Prabhakar, was at DEF CON. She takes her own crack at manipulating AI. I'm going to say, how would I convince someone that unemployment is raging? It's, it's doing the dot, dot, dot. But before Prabhakar can succeed in getting a chatbot to make up fake economic news in front of an audience of reporters, her aide pulls her away. Back at his laptop, Bowman, the Dakota State student, is trying to get the AI to agree there was a market crash in 2022. No luck so far, but he has some ideas. You wanted to do the thinking for you. Well, you wanted to believe that it's thinking for you. And by doing that, you let it fill in its blanks. And he says, by trying to be helpful, it ends up being harmful. Shannon Bond, NPR News, Las Vegas. You're listening to All Things Considered. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru, who, along with its retailers, is partnering with AdoptAClassroom.org to provide funding to high-need schools and local communities for Subaru Loves Learning. Subaru, more than a car company. From EBSCO, weaving libraries into the web with linked data technology, designed to help make library resources more discoverable for library users, anytime, anywhere. Learn more at ebsco.com. 
From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at MacFound.org. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. Coming up on WBUR in about 10 minutes, what's next after the indictment of Donald Trump and 18 attorneys and allies for an alleged scheme to overturn the state's 2020 uh, election results? Plus, going to the movies is a thing again. Listen at the end of your day and then again tomorrow on WBUR. More on these stories and a lot more. A soggy day, a damp night overnight tonight. It should be about 65 degrees overnight, almost that right now. Then tomorrow, overcast skies once again should rise to the mid-70s. The time now is 4.59. I'm Chief Content Officer Victor Hernandez. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Former President Donald Trump and 18 other people have been criminally charged in Georgia with trying to subvert the 2020 presidential election. The participants in association took various actions to block the counting of the votes of the presidential electors. It's Tuesday, August 15th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. A closer look at the conspiracy alleged in the new indictment coming up. The deadly Maui fires, wildfires that is, have burned through some of the island's most significant historical landmarks. We'll take stock of what's been lost. And pro football player Michael Orr's story of being adopted by a wealthy family who pulled him out of poverty was made into a movie, The Blind Side. Now Orr is saying that all never happened. It's 501, Wall Street numbers and the forecast are coming up. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden says he and First Lady Jill Biden now plan to travel to Hawaii to view the damage caused by wildfires, but are waiting to make sure they don't disrupt ongoing disaster recovery work. The fires have claimed at least 99 lives and likely many more. NPR's Deepa Shivram report. President Biden said he and the First Lady will travel to Hawaii as soon as they can. In the meantime, he said he's sending thoughts and prayers, but also federal aid. Every asset, every asset they need will be there for them. And we will be there in Maui as long as it takes. Biden is currently on a swing through Milwaukee to tout his economic agenda. The White House says he received updates by phone from Hawaii Governor Josh Green and FEMA Director Deanne Criswell this morning. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News, Milwaukee. The latest indictment against former President Donald Trump, this time in connection with a probe by Georgia District Attorney Fonnie Willis, may be the broadest yet. The indictment naming Trump and 18 of his allies, charging them with an array of state counts. The indictment details dozens of actions allegedly aimed at overturning the results of the 2020 election. Trump has 10 days to turn himself in for arraignment in the case. Other defendants named in the indictment handed up last night include Trump's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, and Trump Administration Justice Department official Jeffrey Clark. 
The property manager at Mar-a-Lago pleaded not guilty today to charges he tried to destroy surveillance tapes at former President Trump's private club in Palm Beach. NPR's Greg Allen reports Carlos de Oliveira was arraigned today in Fort Pierce, Florida. Trump and aide Walt Nader were already arraigned on charges of withholding and concealing classified and top-secret documents from investigators. Last month, prosecutors added new charges and included Carlos de Oliveira in the indictment. Prosecutors alleged that after investigators subpoenaed security camera videos at Mar-a-Lago, at Trump's direction, de Oliveira tried unsuccessfully to delete the footage. Trump and Nader pleaded not guilty last week to the new charges. De Oliveira's arraignment was delayed until he secured a local attorney. This case, one of four criminal indictments Trump is facing, is scheduled to go to trial next May. Greg Allen, NPR News. Investors get new information about retail sales this week. Scott Horsley reports. Retail sales jumped by seven-tenths of a percent last month, far outpacing the rise in prices. People spent more at the grocery store and on restaurant meals. Sales at gas stations also rose faster than gasoline prices. Internet sales jumped nearly 2 percent, thanks in part to Amazon's annual Prime promotion. Sales of cars, furniture, and electronics were down during the month, but sales at home and garden centers were up. Home Depot reported better-than-expected profits for its most recent quarter, but offered cautious guidance for the remainder of the year. Home sales have been weighed down by rising interest rates. The average rate on a 30-year fixed mortgage is now around 7%. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Republican presidential candidates are reacting to the latest criminal indictment out of Georgia, which accused former President Donald Trump and his allies of a conspiracy to upend the 2020 election. WBUR's Anthony Brooks reports from New Hampshire, which holds the nation's first Republican presidential primary. Reaction to Trump's fourth indictment in the last five months continues to divide the Republican presidential field. At a News Nation town hall, entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy condemned the legal action against the former president. These are politicized persecutions through prosecution. But former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson repeated his call for Trump to drop out of the race. And former Congressman Will Hurd, who campaigned in New Hampshire this week, told PBS that it's long past time for Republicans to move on from Trump. Donald Trump is a liar. Donald Trump is a loser. Meanwhile, a new morning consult poll shows Trump still way ahead in the race for the Republican presidential nomination. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. Attorney General Andrea Campbell is distributing $1.5 million to 11 organizations in the state that provide maternal health services. The money will fund expanded access to resources such as culturally appropriate prenatal care and doulas, as well as breastfeeding support. Organizations receiving the funding include the Cambridge Health Alliance Foundation, Mother's Milk Bank Northeast, and the Greater Lawrence Family Health Center. A three-year-old boy is expected to make a full recovery after he nearly drowned in a swimming pool in Berkeley on the south coast. 911 dispatchers gave emergency medical instructions to family members over the phone as members of the town's police and fire department were dispatched to the home on Sunday. Shortly after the first responders got there, the boy regained consciousness. He's expected to be released from the hospital soon. And a Dorchester woman is pleading guilty to charges she scammed her former employer out of more than $100,000. 29-year-old Stacy Sanchez-Martinez worked for Alliance Realty. She admitted to overcharging tenants for security deposits and pocketing half the money. She also charged clients fake fees and had tenants deposit rent payments directly to her personal bank account. 
She was sentenced to probation and will be back in court in October. In the forecast, temperatures almost in the mid-60s now, and that's where they should stay overnight tonight. Overcast tonight, maybe a few showers. And tomorrow, the only change is that it should be milder. Could reach the mid-70s, but generally cloudy skies. 68 degrees now in Boston at 5.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people, and Jarl and Pamela Mohn, thanking the people who make public radio great every day and also those who listen. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Former President Trump is now facing a fourth criminal case against him, this time brought by the state of Georgia. The indictment alleges that Trump attempted to subvert the 2020 election by taking part in a, quote, criminal enterprise, along with more than a dozen named lawyers and former advisors. Here's Fulton County, Georgia District Attorney Fonnie Willis describing the charges last night. Every individual charged in the indictment is charged with one count of violating Georgia's Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act. That is Georgia's RICO law, like its federal counterpart. It was designed mostly to prosecute organized crime groups. For more on how it factors into Georgia's case against Trump, we turn now to George Chidi. He's an Atlanta journalist who has spent many years covering Willis and RICO, and he was also selected to testify for the grand jury, though he wasn't actually called to testify in the very end. Welcome. Happy to be here. So real briefly, George, how does Georgia's anti-racketeering law, the RICO Act, come into play in this case? So first, uh, Georgia's racketeering law is modeled on the federal law, um, but and it allows for expansive use of um, evidence that might not necessarily be in, included in another kind of case. Um, it also allows for the prosecution of um acts that don't actually occur in georgia as long as as long as there's a nexus in georgia Mm -hmm. uh they could go after people like john eastman who may never have actually set foot in the state right and and to be clear this is not the first time that willis has employed rico as a tool in criminal prosecutions right can you just give us a sense of how she has used it in past cases so uh, her star rose around RICO when the Atlanta public schools cheating scandal broke and prosecutors decided that that was a RICO case, that that fraud was worth, you know, pulling in a a whole lot of teachers and they prosecuted teachers. And it was this, it was, it was the longest case to date. It took longer to, to get through that case than any other trial to that point that that Georgia has had like that that record's been broken now um, <laughs> but it was an uh, unusual there's a, there's application a, there's a case of that's going on now that's that's longer right but it wasn't an, an unusual application of Rico right uh in the sense that you're going after school teachers I would say it actually was unusual usually you're going after gangsters you're going after the mob mm-hmm. um the idea that uh, 
teachers acting in concert is uh, racketeering was kind of novel, I think. Literally Uh, alleging a criminal enterprise. But you mentioned the length of the trial. I mean, to be fair, RICO can cause problems. It allows for prosecutors like Willis to build a narrative, but it can also, because of the complexity of the case that you have to lay out, it can slow things down in the prosecution. Is that correct? I I think that's true. Mm -hmm. I also think that jury selection becomes fraught. In the RICO case that we're looking at with Young Thug and the YSL indictment, uh, that's a gang case in Atlanta. Jury selection began in January and is still going on. Wow. (laughs) Well, despite the risks of bringing a RICO case, given Willis's success and track record prosecuting RICO cases, do you think... She has a good chance of convincing a jury in Fulton County that Trump and others did indeed act as a criminal organization. I think so, based on the evidence that has been laid out in the indictment. Uh, The uh, I mean, there's there's a, a lot of evidence. This is a long document and she's taken two years to gather it. Uh, I, I think her chances are pretty solid. Um, The one thing, though, I have to say is that I am hesitant to get too deep into whether or not this person or that person should be criminally charged because I might end up having to testify. Well, can I ask you about that? Because we mentioned that you were subpoenaed as a witness in this case, though the grand jury did not end up needing your testimony in the end. Were you surprised by the fact that you were called to be a witness? It's a little bonkers. No question. You don't (laughs) want to you don't want a journalist in you know, having to testify to anything um, because there's a a question of whether or not the government is telling, you know, news reporters what to say and making them act as uh, agents of the government. Um, You also kind of don't want a journalist sitting around outside your grand jury while while things are going on, because I get to tweet from inside (laughs) um, inside the not obviously from inside the grand jury room. But right. Last night was fun. Let's just put it like that. Uh, fun in the sense that this was super, super weird. Um, I'm, I, I didn't have to testify. I'm actually All a right. little relieved by that uh-huh. uh, because I think it upholds the better angels of journalism All for right. me not to have to testify. We will leave it there. George Cheedy is a crime and politics reporter in Atlanta and co-host of the podcast King Slime. Thanks so much. Thank you. As the death toll in the Maui wildfires continues to rise, residents of the historic port town of Lahaina want to be let in to see the damage. But Hawaii Governor Josh Green is asking for patience as first responders continue to recover bodies with the help of cadaver dogs in what the state is calling Stage Zero. Stage Zero is getting through all of the properties where those who have passed are. When we get out of that, we'll be able to open the road completely. We'll be able to make everything a lot easier. The current death toll is 99 and is expected to rise, as only 25% of Lahaina has been searched so far. In addition to the human toll, the fires have burned through some of the island's most significant landmarks. Everything was beautiful, green, historic, buildings that are 100 years old. There's layers of history from the sailors and the whalers, from the agriculture to World War II. Now it's just decimated to rubble and ash, and all of the monuments
residents that were really a standout that made Lahaina what it is are now gone. That's Lahaina resident Bully Cotter talking to our producer, Janaki Mitha, on a boat that was delivering supplies to the town. To learn more about that history, we reached out to Julia Flynn Seiler, who's been writing about the island for more than 20 years, including in her book, Lost Kingdom, Hawaii's Last Queen, The Sugar Kings, and America's First Imperial Adventure. I asked her to tell us what Lahaina looked like before the fires. Lahaina was the first royal capital of the Kingdom of Hawaii, founded by King Kamehameha I at the turn of the 19th century. Can you just describe for those of us who haven't been there before these fires what that looked like? There's an area in Lahaina known as its historic district, and in this district are wooden and coral stone buildings that dated back to the very first missionary settlers who came to the islands. Coral stone is literally the stone that was dragged from the water to help build those very early homes, such as Baldwin Home. It has been totally destroyed. One of the first missionary homes in Lahaina, built in 1834. Of course, before that were the very first settlers, and those were Polynesians who came from the Marquesas navigating by the stars. Those were the native Hawaiians who arrived probably around 200 AD. Lahaina is a town that captures a broad swath of Hawaiian history. Those original Polynesian settlers, the whalers, the missionaries, the traders who were going back and forth from mainland United States to China, and they'd often stop in Lahaina. It was a a very raucous, body port town for more than a century. When you heard of these devastating fires, what first came to your mind? Well, of course, my heart broke for the people who lived in Lahaina. And the first memory that came to my mind was the town's historic 150-year-old banyan tree, which I remember standing under and looking up at awe a few years ago with our younger son. That tree came to symbolize the beauty and history of that place for me. It's believed to be the largest tree in the Hawaiian islands. I mean, just imagine its canopy covers more than half of an acre and it soars 60 feet into the air. And it wasn't Lahaina's oldest landmark, but it may be its most beloved. And it stands right in the center of the historic district, right across from the old Lahaina courthouse and where hula dancers would perform. And some might feed the wild uh, chickens that were clucking underneath the tree. It's a very memorable, magical place. The devastation there has been wide-reaching, with thousands of buildings and homes burned, many people displaced, more than 90 have been killed. But what do we know about these historic landmarks of Lahaina, how that history has fared as folks survey the destruction? Well, we believe that the town has been almost entirely destroyed at this point. But as a powerful symbol of hope, one of the few things standing seems to be this 150-year-old banyan tree. It's kind of a miracle. And likewise, the old lighthouse, which would guide steamers and guide the whaling ships into the harbor, it's standing as well. As we look ahead towards recovery and rebuilding efforts, how do you hope that the island and this town can move forward? Well, of course, I strongly feel that those native to Hawaii should 
have a say in how this town is rebuilt. The purpose of preserving the island's history and the town's history is to help us remember the truth about its past. And that past is painful. It's a colonial past. How do we preserve with respect to the many multicultural peoples who made the town of Lahaina what it was and what it will be? Writer Julia Flynn Seiler, thank you so much. Thank you, Anna. This is All Things Considered. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. As the school year starts in Florida, a new wave of laws and regulations around what can be taught is creating a legal minefield for educators. Back to school confusion coming up on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Circle Furniture. Family-owned and committed to sustainability, community, and quality. Seven locations across Mass and New Hampshire. CircleFurniture.com. A slide for stocks today on Wall Street. The Dow fell about a full percent. S&P and NASDAQ both dropped more than one and a tenth percent. A London-based transit technology company hopes to expand its footprint in Boston. Zelo helps provide schools with student transportation and private companies with commuter shuttles. The company said today it secured $14 million in venture capital funding to expand in the U.S. Its American headquarters in Boston employs 10 people that could grow to 30 people by the end of next year. The forecast is ahead. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Merrimack College, offering professional training for teachers and administrators with online graduate certificates in educational leadership. Online.merrimack.edu. Listen to WBOR anywhere you venture this summer. Download or update the WBOR app now and tap to listen live. A rainy, drizzly day gives way to a cloudy night overnight tonight. Temperatures should be in the mid-60s, which is just about where they are right now. Then for tomorrow, should be milder, could reach the mid-70s. Lots of clouds around again tomorrow. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. The 2009 film The Blind Side was the feel-good film of the year. It's mine? Yes, sir. What? Never had one before. What, a room to yourself? A bed. Well, you have one now. It's based on Michael Orr's life, the story of a kid who grew up in poverty, who's adopted by a white family, the Tuies, and with their help, catapulted into NFL stardom. Well, loosely based anyway. Orr disputes a lot of it, like the way the film depicts him as unintelligent. But now he alleges that in real life, not the movies, the Tui family actually tricked him into signing conservatorship papers shortly after he turned 18, and they went on to make millions of dollars in his name. Michael Fletcher broke the story for ESPN and joins me now. Michael, welcome. Good to be here. 
Michael Orr alleges that the Tui family has made millions of dollars off of his story and that that's money that has not been shared with him. But in this petition, he also alleges that continuing damage has been done to him. Can you help us understand that part and what he means by that? Yeah, well, there were a couple of things. You know, the movie itself and the the kind of a couple of um, storylines merge here all along since the movie was made or has kind of been disgruntled about how, as you mentioned, how he was depicted as unintelligent. And he feels like that's, that hurt his NFL career and even to this day hurts how he's perceived when people meet him. People assume they know who he is and they assume that he's he's not so smart when actually the opposite is true. He did very well in school once he had a, a good situation in school and, was, and had something of a stable life. So there's, there's that, but then also there's the deception that he feels from the Tuies, like the idea that not only did they not adopt him, but that they that they exploited him. They used kind of this ruse, he would say, to make money off of his name. And, and it's a betrayal that I think, you know, that haunts him to, to this day. Mm. Sean Tuie alleges that the lawyers contacted by the family said that they weren't able to adopt someone over the age of 18, that conservatorship was really the only option. And I'm quoting from this article here. Sean Tui says, quote, we were so concerned it was on the up and up that we made sure the biological mother came to court. And quote, do you know, based on your research and reporting, would that have been true in Tennessee back in 2004 when Aura was 18 years old? I mean, my understanding is that they would have been able to adopt him. I mean, Mr. Tui is right. You could see the mother's signature on the conservatorship document. She did sign that. But it would have been, from what I'm told, perfectly legal for the Tuis to have adopted him back then. So it's hard, to, you know, to understand. But I'll say this. The Tuis have said consistently, you know, going back to the other question about the profits, they claim that the movie didn't yield them a, a lot of money and that whatever money they had they had made, they had shared it for. So it's an interesting dichotomy here. Someone, you know, you, you have kind of two opposing views of, of what happened here. What is Michael Orr seeking from the judge in this petition that you've been taking a look at? Well, it's a couple of things. Number one, he wants this conservatorship to end because it's amazing. Even at age 37, this remains in place. And the second thing he's seeking is a, a full accounting of the money the Tuies made from the blind side. He says he wants a full accounting, and that once that's done, he wants to be given his fair share of the profits. And he's also hoping that the court imposes um, punitive damages on the Tuies. So, Michael, based on what you've heard and seen, where do you think this goes from here? Well, I think we just have to wait and see how it plays out in court. The Tui's you know, lawyer told me that they'll be filing, he'll be filing a legal response within days or weeks, you know, sort of giving a formal answer to, to the complaint, to the petition. And I think we'll have to see, you know, where that goes. I think this is one of those questions that the courts will have to hash out. But it's one thing I haven't heard yet from the Tui's is kind of a, an explanation, a, a realistic explanation about the adoption. And that seems to be something that really really um, has left Michael Orr in, in some pain. That was ESPN senior writer Michael Fletcher. Michael, thank you. Oh, thank you. One of the great connectors in the music and entertainment industries died on Sunday. The executive and businessman Clarence Avant was 92 years old. As NPR's Anastasia Siokis reports, he was responsible for the careers of generations of musicians and entertainers with his combination of street savvy and business sense. 
Clarence Avant was the man behind the scenes in countless deals for artists and sports stars. He grew up very poor in Climax, North Carolina, as the oldest of eight children. He never got a formal education past the ninth grade, but that only motivated him. One of Avant's first big scores was signing an unknown singer-songwriter already in his 30s. The artist's name was Bill Withers. Ain't no sunshine when she's gone. It's not warm when she's away. Avant signed Withers to his own label, Sussex Records. It's an innocuous-sounding name, but Avon had a sly sense of humor. Sussex was a portmanteau of two things Avon said he knew everyone wanted more of, success and sex. Wonder this time where she's gone. Sussex eventually went under, but Avon dusted himself off. He eventually was the promoter for Michael Jackson's first solo tour. He became the chairman of Motown Records. He nurtured several eras of influential musicians and producers, including Diddy, Jimmy Jam, and Terry Lewis. He connected Jimmy and Terry with Janet Jackson to create her breakthrough album, 1986's Control, with hits like Nasty. Avon also became a major force in politics. He advised President George H.W. Bush, but was also a fundraiser for Presidents Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton, and Barack Obama. Netflix, which is headed by Avant's son-in-law, Ted Sarandos, created a documentary about him in 2019. The film's title carries Avant's longtime nickname, The Black Godfather. In that film, Bill Clinton called Avant's counsel priceless. His advice per word is probably worth more than just about anybody I ever dealt with. Avant was also a dealmaker for sports heroes, including Hank Aaron and Jim Brown. He understood the power of being influential, not just in politics, but in pop culture as well. In the Netflix documentary, rapper Ludacris explained that Avant's bigger goal was to promote black talent. Clarence is the type of person that wants everyone to do better because he understands that there are strength in numbers, and the bigger that we are together, the bigger we will be as an entire culture. Avant came back into the news after a tragedy in December 2021. His wife of over 50 years, Jacqueline, was killed in a violent burglary at their home in Beverly Hills. The following April, the murderer was sentenced to 190 years in prison. Anastasia Tsilkas, NPR News, New York. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Still feeling a little raw this afternoon as temperatures dip toward the mid-60s, which is where they should stay overnight tonight. Overcast skies overnight. And then tomorrow, spotty showers are in store, especially for the morning hours. Should be a pretty gray day, but the sun could make a cameo or two tomorrow. Temperatures rising to the mid-70s. Could be cloudy and warmer on Thursday, up around 80. Coming up in about 10 minutes on WBUR, why the Hawaiian island of Maui wasn't better prepared for the devastating wildfire. The scope and level and amount that needed to get done was never really reached because we actually really never found funds or capacity to do the full scale of what we would have liked to have done. 
That story and much more are coming up on WBUR. 68 degrees now in Boston. The time is 5.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by A Street Frames. 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston. AStreetFrames.com. Opioid overdose deaths for black Americans have jumped, in some cases as much as 86%. We have to look at this as an unacceptable number. We must have a response that matches that historic number in terms of saving lives. I'm Deborah Becker. What's behind the increase in overdoses for black Americans? That's On Point tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dwayne Brown. On Capitol Hill, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is marking the anniversary of President Biden's major legislative achievement, also known as the Inflation Reduction Act. NPR's Deidre Walsh has the story. Schumer acknowledged that it will take a while for the impact of the climate and health care bill to sink in with voters. But he says, quote, the best is yet to come. The Senate Majority Leader argues that talking about the economic benefits of the law which Democrats passed on their own, will show a major contrast between the two parties in the 2024 election. And I think the contrast between the Republicans and us is glaring. We are investing. They are investigating. Schumer says that what he calls the largest climate action bill in history will lower costs and expand the middle class by creating new jobs in the energy sector. But Republicans say Americans are still paying higher prices and that inflation will hurt Democrats next fall at the ballot box. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News, Washington. President Biden is set to host his first international summit at Camp David on Friday with Japan's Prime Minister and the President of South Korea. Secretary of State Tony Blinken told reporters today Japan and South Korea are core allies, not just in the region, but around the world. He says President Biden is looking forward to welcoming the two leaders in an effort to strengthen cooperation beyond the Indo-Pacific. Together, the leaders will have an opportunity to discuss and to strengthen practical cooperation on a variety of shared priorities, from physical security to economic security, from humanitarian assistance to development finance, from global health to critical and emerging technologies. Secretary Blinken says the leaders will also focus on the growing threat of North Korea's nuclear program as well as Russia's ongoing war with Ukraine. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The head of the Republican Party in Massachusetts says the latest indictments out of Georgia against former President Donald Trump come as no surprise to many Republicans but could bring challenges in local races. Here's WBUR's Steve Brown. When the first indictments against Trump were handed up this past spring, Mass GOP Chair Amy Carnevale said they appeared to be based on contrived legal arguments. Now she seems to be softening that critique, saying the process will play out and the former president will have an opportunity to defend himself. Carnevale says the drama surrounding Trump isn't helping local Republican candidates. I did hear from Republicans in the last election that you kind of having President Trump at the top of the ticket may not have been helpful necessarily to them here at running it at home in Massachusetts. Carnevale says as state party chair, she's more focused on issues on Beacon Hill and predicts voters can differentiate between local and national politics. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. More than 134,000 people who have enrolled in certain state programs could have been caught up in a data breach. 
The UMass Chan Medical School, which administers the system, says the breach is part of a worldwide security incident involving a third-party software program called MoveIt. Some of the people affected have received help from the Executive Office of Health and Human Services. The leaked data could include birthdays, addresses, health information, social security numbers, and financial information. UMass Chan began notifying affected individuals yesterday and says people should monitor their financial accounts and enroll in free credit monitoring. Massachusetts cranberry growers are forecasting a productive crop this year. The Cape Cod Cranberry Growers Association says it's anticipating a crop of nearly 2,100,000 barrels. That's just a percentage point lower than the harvest last year. That's despite some spring frost damage and a wetter-than-average July. Farmers will start their harvest in late September. If you think it's been a wetter-than-average summer so far in greater Boston, you are right. This July was the second rainiest on record for the city. Alan Dunham is a meteorologist with the National Weather Service. He says about 15 and a half inches of rain have fallen in the city since June. And that puts us over a half a foot above normal. Now, you got to remember, for the last couple of years, we've been in below-normal drought conditions, So this year, Mother Nature's giving us a taste of what it's like on the wet side. This time last year, a drought made it one of the driest summers in Boston in years. 68 degrees right now, showers through the day today, but overnight tonight should be fairly dry, maybe just a few random showers, temperatures in the mid-60s. Overcast and foggy, then for tomorrow could reach the mid-70s. Should be pretty heavy on the clouds. Could stay gray for Thursday. This is WBUR. It's 536. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BritBox, streaming new and original British series starring Succession's Matthew McFadden and Game of Thrones' Gemma Whalen. Available at BritBox.com NPR. From Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at Indeed.com slash NPR. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. One of the biggest questions in the aftermath of the devastating wildfires in Maui is how prepared the island was for fire. Officials have known for almost a decade that the area could protect itself better by managing grasses and vegetation differently. But according to Hawaii fire experts, not much was done. Lauren Sommer from NPR's Climate Desk joins us now for Maui with more. Hi, Lauren. Hi, Juana. So, Lauren, as we've been talking about since this happened, wildfires are not uncommon in Hawaii, though a fire of this scale certainly is. You were recently in Lahaina. Remind us of the fire risks in that landscape. Yeah, I think a lot of people picture, you know, lush green mountains of Hawaii, right? But on that side of West Maui, where Lahaina is, it looks more like California. There's just dry grasses surrounding all the houses there. It's kind of up to your knees. Much of it is former sugarcane fields that are now filled with invasive grasses. And I, I saw that at the home of one resident, Gordon Firestein, and from his yard, you can see just kind of the blue of the ocean and then this blackened burn scar of the fire, and it, which almost made it all the way to his neighborhood. Uh, hard to process trying to deal with the cognitive dissonance of the beauty and the ash. 
You know, I think it was even tougher for Fire's team because he's one of the people that's been trying to prevent fires like this. Oh, really? I mean, tell us, what's he doing to help prevent wildfires? Yeah, he's actually from California. So when he moved here 15 years ago, he knew it was a problem. And he and his neighbors started a FireWise community. It's a program from the nonprofit National Fire Protection Association. And it gives neighborhoods just a guidebook about what to work on, like evacuation and defensible space, you know, which is clearing the brush around a home or at the edges of a town. And how have those efforts been working, Lauren? Yeah, Firestein says they've reached a lot of neighbors with their message, but a big problem is that nothing is mandatory. In states like California, if you live in a high-risk zone, you're required by state law to clear defensible space, and there are actually inspections. I certainly hope that that's part of the post-fire process, is that we begin to look seriously at California, for example, as a model. And the government has also examined some of these fire risks, right? What'd they find? Yeah, they did. And nine years ago, government agencies were part of a bigger plan to look at what 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 Miss Maui had to do. Um, it recommended evacuation planning, doing fuel breaks, which is managing all that dry grass at the edge of town. So there's kind of like a buffer when a wildfire comes. To be clear, it's not a guarantee to stop a wildfire, especially in those high winds, but it's really shown to reduce the risk. And did they follow through? Yeah, I talked to someone who helped write the plan. Um, Elizabeth Pickett is with the Hawaii Wildfire Management Organization, which is a nonprofit that works on fire policy. She says a handful of projects were completed, but that's all. The scope and level and amount that needed to get done was never really reached because we actually really never found funds or capacity to do the full scale of what we would have liked to have done. And another Maui County report found the same thing, that funding was a big problem. So are Hawaii officials considering doing things differently in the wake of this fire? You know, Hawaii's governor has acknowledged that managing the land and invasive grass is something they need to examine, but it's funding that's the problem. And it's not just in Hawaii. A lot of communities around the country struggle with that issue, too. Lauren Summer from NPR's Climate Desk in Maui. Thank you. Thank you. It's back to school time in Florida, and while the students may be excited, their teachers, principals, and other administrators may not be. That's because this year, much more than in years past, the people charged with taking care of those kids are under a microscope. And as WFSU's Lynn Hatter found, that scrutiny is taking a personal and professional toll on public education. It's the first day of school in Leon County, and the seniors at Charles High School are carrying on what's become a tradition. Black tees and blue jeans and shorts. They're smiling, happy. There's hugs and reconnection with friends. That excitement, though, isn't quite resounding with everyone. In the past, I used to feel so excited. As, you know, when you're, Especially when you're a young teacher, any young teacher feel like they could change the world. But when the world is changing around you and what you come to know, as a teacher, it does kind of dampen your spirit. Anthony is a college professor and teaches history at a Florida high school. We're not using his full name or where he teaches because he's concerned he could be targeted for his views. Florida teachers now risk their teaching certifications under new state laws that allow parents to file challenges against them. It's an environment that's led to an increase in teacher resignations across the state. I don't think there are a lot of people who are willing to go into a classroom in the environment that's been created here in the state of Florida. According to Florida Education Association President Andrew Spar, there are nearly 7,000 instructor vacancies and more than 4,000 openings for school support staff. 
Spar says some of that is due to the new laws. There's just a lot of bad policy in Florida, policy that keeps pay very low, policy that really disrespects the profession as a whole, that doesn't allow for teachers to teach the way they know is best, that doesn't value their educational experience. And so that's why people are walking out of the profession in record numbers. Those policies include restrictions on preferred names and pronouns, discussion of race and discrimination, access to certain kinds of books and classroom materials, and so-called banned subjects like gender identity and sexual orientation, which most recently led some districts to drop AP psychology, which includes those topics despite the state saying it's okay. We are committed to providing our students the course they signed up for, which is advanced placement psychology. Uh, we've had a, a little bit of a roller coaster ride over the last week about how to go about doing that. Rocky Hanna is no stranger to the state's crackdowns. As Leon County School Superintendent, he was the subject of an investigation last year triggered by his open criticism of state education law. All of our teachers are on board. You know, they're scared. They're fearful that a parent's going to lodge a complaint and that professional practices will launch an investigation into them like they did to me because of my personal views a year ago. But we have reassured them that they will not be in this alone. With all the risk, why remain a teacher at all? <laughs> um, I don't, if so, if, if that's the question, I don't, I don't really know. That's Anthony again, the history teacher. But you know one, because I'll tell you this, no one becomes a teacher to become a millionaire. No one becomes a teacher to make a whole lot of money. You become a teacher because you want to make an impact on the future and on the students in your classroom, man. You want to have a positive effect on the community to which you serve. And he's still looking forward to helping his students learn and grow. For NPR News, I'm Len Hatter in Tallahassee. Tomorrow on Morning Edition, a years-long NPR investigation has uncovered a trove of government documents. They show how people held in ICE detention centers were exposed to barbaric treatment and that the government's own experts found major failures in these facilities. So how's the government responding and what can be done about it? That story tomorrow on Morning Edition. Turn it, tune in on the radio, online, or by asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your local station by name. You are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Just four companies dominate about 85% of the beef processing market. That means higher prices for consumers and lower returns for the people raising the animals. So some ranchers and cattle feeders are organizing to build their own processing plants. Harvest Public Media's Elizabeth Rembert reports on a rancher-led meatpacking project in Nebraska. Hundreds of cows crowd close to the edges of a pen to push their heads through a fence and get to the golden grains in a feed trough. Trey Wasserberger looks out at the cattle from his pickup. He works at this feed yard alongside his father-in-law outside of North Platte, Nebraska. These will be probably ready to go here in the next 30 or 40 days. They'll go to a large packer and they'll be in the beef supply chain in 60 days probably. He says it takes three years of hard work to even get the cows to this point. And now the feed yard work starts. 
Cassie Lapisotis runs another feed yard in western Nebraska and says it operates kind of like how you expect a clean bed at a hotel. So when these cattle come into a feed yard, we want their pens to be clean, their water tanks to be clean, the feed to be freshly laid out in front of them. Wasserberger and Lapisotis are proud of how they take care of their animals to bring quality meat to the market. But right now, their paychecks don't reflect the sweat, science, and money they've invested. Not yet. That's where sustainable beef comes in. Wasserberger and Lapisotis are founders and board members of Sustainable Beef, a meatpacking plant owned and designed by ranchers and cattle feeders. Ranchers are working on similar projects in Missouri, Iowa, South Dakota, and Idaho. They hope that keeping processing closer to home can help them regain control and profit to keep their livelihoods sustainable into the future. In Nebraska, the idea gained momentum after the pandemic, when COVID forced packers to limit operations and turn away market-ready cattle. I still remember June of 2020, we couldn't get any cattle in anywhere. I lost a third of my equity in cattle almost overnight. It was a new low as ranchers lost buyers and shoppers faced empty meat shelves. But it wasn't a new problem. For decades, companies like Tyson, Cargill, JBS, and National Beef have absorbed other meat processors, leaving fewer buyers to compete for animals. At the future home of the meatpacking plant, about 100 people work to move dirt and drive trucks at the construction site. When sustainable beef is operational, it'll process around 1,500 cattle a day. That's roughly 1.5% of the nation's capacity. But they're not trying to compete against the big four packers, Wasserberger says. It's like comparing the Yankees to my son's t-ball team. Uh, we don't want to be the Yankees, and we're not pretending like we are. This model works for us and our families, and so we're going to play ball how we know. They might have an uphill road just to stay in the game. Past startups in Kansas, Nebraska, and Iowa have tripped over logistics, collapsed under market pressure, or even been swallowed up by one of the giant packers. Austin Frerich, a Yale University fellow who studies concentration in the meat market, hopes they can find a foothold. If they can carve out a niche where they can play t-ball, at least they're playing baseball. But he says the broader industry needs regulation to truly level the playing field for projects like sustainable beef. I want a bunch of baseball teams. I think the best thing we can do for them is break up the big four, put competition back into these markets so they have a chance to succeed. The ranchers know it's a challenge, but for a new future in cattle, they think it's worth a try. For NPR News, I'm Elizabeth Rembert. A version of this story also aired on Climate One, the climate change podcast. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Thanks for joining us this evening. Coming up in about 20 minutes on WBUR is All Things Considered, living better by improving ventilation where you live. That's still ahead. It's 549. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with cooking and baking workshops, technique and regional cuisine series, and cooking couples classes, cambridgeculinary.com. And Comcast Business, providing businesses with cyber threat security designed to keep devices protected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. Red Sox are in Washington, D.C. tonight for the first of a three-game series against the Washington Nationals. Nick Pavetta gets the start for Boston. Uh, Josiah Gray for the uh, takes the hill for the Nationals. First pitch is at 7.05. In the forecast, pretty soggy around the Boston area overnight tonight. Not too much rain, but should be foggy and uh, overcast. 
Look for tomorrow. Look for temperatures in the mid-70s. Should be heavy on the clouds tomorrow and could stay gray for Thursday. This is WBUR. Does Donald Trump's latest indictment make any more difference politically than the first three did? I'm Steve Inskeep. We will follow the aftermath of Trump's indictment for trying to overturn his election defeat, both inside and outside the courtroom. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. With less than a month until the G20 summit in India, the country has seen a spate of violent clashes. As Prime Minister Narendra Modi prepares to welcome world leaders, experts say that these incidents could seriously complicate his ability to showcase India as an Asian superpower. From Delhi, Shalu Yadav reports. Anti-Muslim slogans reverberated in the streets of Gurugram, just outside of capital Delhi, a hub for dozens of multinational companies, including Google and American Express. Just six miles from here, President Biden and other world leaders will arrive for the G20 summit in early September. These men from the majority Hindu community threatened Muslims, asking them to pack their belongings and leave or face consequences. What sparked this outrage was religious violence in the neighboring region of Nu on July 31st. At least five people died in the clashes when a Hindu religious procession was allegedly attacked by Muslims. Then, Hindus set a mosque on fire and allegedly killed a Muslim cleric. After the rioters left, came the authorities with bulldozers. Witnesses say hundreds of homes and shops belonging to Muslims were demolished by authorities. The demolitions lasted for four days until a local court in the state of Punjab and Haryana stepped in. It asked the government whether it was conducting an exercise of ethnic cleansing by targeting a particular community. These are devastating words, says Shushan Singh, a senior fellow at Centre for Policy Research in India. That's the strongest word that, at least in my living memory in 75 years, has been ever used because of this form of vigilantism that the Indian state displays. Singh says there's a pattern in India these days. In many states governed by Prime Minister Narendra Modi's ruling Bharatiya Janata Party or the BJP, where properties belonging to Muslims have been demolished as a way of punishing them. He also says there's been a rise in anti-Muslim rhetoric since the BJP came to power in 2014, a charge that the government denies. India is proud to assume the presidency of G20. Ahead of next month's G20 summit, Prime Minister Modi wants to tell the world that he is a leader of a unified, democratic country, which is a rising superpower. But as incidents of religious violence keep making international headlines, many are questioning his narrative. Stop your false equivalences! Ethnic clashes in the northeastern state of Manipur have also put the spotlight on Modi government. 130 people have died and 60,000 have been displaced since the tensions began in May. Reality is why this government may Last week, opposition parties brought a no-confidence motion against him in the parliament for his lack of action to stop the violence. Modi dismissed their concern, saying that the opposition is out to tarnish India's image internationally. 
He said his government is putting its best foot forward to restore peace in Manipur. This G20 summit is happening in an environment where Manipur has been burning, actually burning for last three months. Sushant Singh again. All these things continue to cast a shadow about his administrative abilities, about his majoritarian Hindutva politics, and about his ability to keep India together. Campaigners have been urging President Biden to raise these issues during his visit to India. But Akar Patel from Amnesty International says even if Biden raised these issues to Modi, things wouldn't change very much. In 2020, we had a visit from the U.S. president. It was uh, Trump then. And while he was in Delhi, in the capital, there was extreme violence in Delhi where mobs that were encouraged by the ruling party, the BJP. And for this reason, I see that the government of India will be okay with a little bit of criticism from the foreign media when it comes here to cover the G20. This is because Patel says Modi knows the West needs him more today than ever. For NPR News, I'm Shalu Yadav in Delhi. It's being called the Barbie Boost. Going to the movies is hot again. Well, okay, sometimes we go to the movies to get out of the heat. But either way, with Barbie and Oppenheimer still attracting audiences, the theater business is booming. NPR's Elizabeth Blair takes a look at whether they can sustain that momentum. The global box office hit $4.5 billion in July. According to the research firm Gower Street, it's the single highest grossing month since before the pandemic began. Where are we going? Barbie land. What? On a recent Friday afternoon, plenty of women were out to see Barbie at the Regal in Silver Spring, Maryland. None of us um, own any pink, so we all had to borrow from other people. 20-year-old Elia Safir and her friend Maya Peek say they usually watch movies at home on one of the streaming services, but... This is my second time seeing it. <laughs> do you think the experience will get you going back to the theaters more often? I think if they could replicate something where it's more of like an event for us all to go, where it was actually more involvement and participation, that would be really cool because, you know, you can't get that just by sitting at home. Some theaters have life-size Barbie boxes for photo ops pink Corvette-shaped popcorn buckets, and pink drinks. We sold, you know, 7,000 frosés or something like that. I can't keep the rosé on the shelf. Paul Brown owns the Terrace Theater in Charleston, South Carolina. He says Barbie and Oppenheimer are fueling the box office, but other movies are also doing well. We have Meg, uh, which is very popular because we live in a beach town where there's a bunch of sharks. <laughs> Everybody out of water! We have Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles because there's a dearth of good children's movies out, so that's bringing in an audience and also bringing in an older set that sort of grew up with that brand. And remember, don't let any human see you because why? Humans are the demon scum of the earth. Avoid them. The competition for humans' leisure time is fierce, and theaters have faced all kinds of challenges over the decades. Big screens in people's homes, television got really good, COVID. Michael O'Leary of the National Association of Theater Owners says critics have predicted the demise of cinemas before. Obviously, having a global pandemic where the government you know, basically told you you could not operate as a movie theater. And, you know, that's an unprecedented challenge. But even in that context, you saw the industry pull together and move forward. Only about 5% of theaters closed during the pandemic. Now they're facing the writers and actors strikes. 
Paul Dergarabedian, a senior media analyst for Comscore, says the prolonged strikes could disrupt the pipeline of movies. Where this becomes very problematic is over the long term. If you don't have actors and writers, you don't have movies. If you don't have movies, you don't have box office. And, and movie theaters need movies to sustain their business. And to thrive, he says, theaters need all parties to work together, from studios to marketers to actors, writers, and directors. But even when everyone is firing on all cylinders, it's not a guarantee of box office success. Theater owner Paul Brown. These are good movies. These are good original movies. They're not based on comic books. For our audience, you know, we'll do okay with the Marvels, but there's a fatigue out there for that kind of stuff, if you ask me. Brown says he'll keep showing Barbie and Oppenheimer for as long as the economics make sense. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News. This is NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from USPS with Ground Advantage, the new two to five day package shipping service. Ground Advantage details are at usps.com advantage. The United States Postal Service, delivering for America. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR. Still feeling a little bit raw this evening as temperatures dip toward the middle 60s, which is where they should stay overnight tonight. Overcast tonight, then spotty showers in store for tomorrow, especially for the morning commute. Should be a gray day tomorrow, but maybe a few shots of sunshine during the day. Temperatures should rise to the mid-70s tomorrow. Could be cloudy and warmer on Thursday, up around 80 degrees. 68 degrees now in Boston at 559. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New England. Boston Lights, presented by National Grid, is back at Franklin Park Zoo. Experience hundreds of amazing lanterns nightly through October 29th. FranklinParkZoo.org. I'm Morning Edition executive producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The defendants engaged in a criminal racketeering enterprise to overturn Georgia's presidential election result. Former President Donald Trump faces yet another criminal indictment. A closer look at this sweeping case in Georgia coming up on this Tuesday, August 15th. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, the American Fulbright program is the flagship educational scholarship available to residents of Afghanistan. But Afghans who've received a Fulbright to study in the U.S. are now targets of the Taliban. Depending on where you live, the air may be filled with wildfire smoke. An easy lesson on how to improve the indoor air quality at home coming up. And then on Marketplace, a wildlife biologist and animal trainer for Liberty Wildlife Rescue in Phoenix talks about how the heat wave has affected animals there. It's 6.01. News headlines are next. 
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The town of Lahaina is confronting the aftermath of the deadliest wildfire in more than 100 years. 99 lives lost so far. That number expected to climb. Some residents are still unable to access clean water or get cell phone service. NPR's Lauren Summer reports frustrations are building over the disaster response. With the search for human remains still underway, the area around Lahaina has been restricted, even for residents. That's made it tough for them to travel to central Maui for supplies and cell service, which is still spotty. Maui County Councilwoman Tamara Palton says some of the decisions state leaders are making aren't being coordinated with local people. You know what I would like to see more of is more communication with us and more listening to us. Palton has been setting up donated wireless hotspots around her community. Much of the disaster response is being done by local residents who have set up a massive grassroots network to funnel supplies. Lauren Summer, NPR News. Former President Donald Trump, the frontrunner for the Republican presidential nomination, is attacking the most recent indictments filed against him in Georgia. He's calling it a witch hunt. As Georgia Public Broadcasting's Stephen Fowler explains, Trump says he'll issue a rebuttal next week. Prosecutors in Atlanta say Trump was one of 19 people who engaged in illegal acts to try to overturn Georgia's 2020 election. Trump has continued to reject those claims and insists the election was stolen despite no evidence and after multiple felony charges have been filed against him stemming from his actions. In a statement on his social media site, Trump says he will release a, quote, irrefutable report on Monday that will show Georgia soft fraudulent results in 2020 and says the charges should be dropped. Similar claims Trump has made in the past were full of false information. For NPR News, I'm Stephen Fowler in Atlanta. Russia's central bank has announced a significant increase in the country's key interest rate. As NPR's Charles Maines reports, the move comes as the government tries to stem a months-long slide in the strength of the ruble in part due to pressure from Western sanctions. The ruble has shed more than a third of its value this year, with losses fueled by massive military spending and a Western price cap on Russian oil exports that's cut into energy revenues. Yet calls to halt the slide only grew after the ruble fell past the symbolic 100 to the the dollar ratio this week. In an emergency session, Russia's central bank raised the key interest rate by 3.5 percent, a jump that nudged the ruble's value up slightly. While a weak ruble has allowed the Kremlin to maintain a surge in wartime spending, it's also prompted inflation and a growing budget deficit. Analysts say even as Russia's economy faces no immediate danger of collapse, Western sanctions continue to hobble its prospects for long-term growth. Charles Maines, NPR News. Moscow. Concerns about China's economy weighed on Wall Street today. The Dow fell 361 points. The Nasdaq was down 157 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Lisa Mullins. The MBTA's chief safety officer will be stepping down at the end of the month. WBUR's Andrea Perdomo Hernandez has more. Ron Esther has overseen safety at the T for the last three years. In a statement, Esther said his departure was bittersweet, but he did not reveal a reason for leaving or his future plans. His last day will be August 30th. The T's general manager and CEO, Phil Ang, said he was grateful for Esther's time with the authority. Rod Brooks, the T's senior advisor for capital operations and safety, will oversee the safety department until Esther's position is filled. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. 
Sharon Durkin is Boston's newest city councillor. She was sworn in this afternoon by Mayor Michelle Wu. Durkin won a special election last month to represent a district that includes the areas from Beacon Hill to Mission Hill. She's replacing Kenzie Bach, who left the post to lead the Boston Housing Authority. Durkin says she will run again this fall for a full two-year term on the council. Conservation Law Foundation has filed a lawsuit against Twin Rivers Technologies of Quincy that accuses the company of violating the U.S. Clean Water and Air Acts. The foundation claims Twin Rivers Glycerin Manufacturing Facility is polluting the Weymouth Four River and Town River Bay. Also, that it's emitting dangerous chemicals into the air. WBUR has reached out to Twin Rivers Technology for comment. Some community college officials are applauding Massachusetts' plan to make a community college education free to some students starting this fall. Funding is available for nursing students and for residents ages 25 or older. On WBUR's Radio Boston today, Bunker Hill Community College President Pam Edinger called the $50 million Mass Reconnect program transformational. Our students are going to be workers and they cannot work in the workplace without training. Almost 90 to 95% of the jobs that are created after COVID need some form of post-secondary training. So we, we are there. We're there to, to be able to deliver. Jackie Jenkins-Scott, who heads Roxbury Community College, says the school is reaching out to students who had to drop out of school in order to tell them about the free tuition program. Massachusetts U.S. Senators Ed Markey and Elizabeth Warren are calling for an end to legacy enrollments in top colleges. They sent a letter today that urges the Department of Education to use its authority to even the playing field for college applicants. Warren and Markey say higher ed is a path toward opportunity that should not be locked behind an ivory tower. The U.S. Supreme Court struck down affirmative action in college admissions in June, and President Biden said the Education Department would examine legacy admissions. Nonprofit arts organization Celebrity Series of Boston is introducing a new program for younger arts lovers. It's called 35 Under 35. People under the age of 35 can get $35 discounted tickets to more than 50 concerts and dance performances in Greater Boston. Performers include Broadway star Audra McDonald and Brazilian contemporary dance company Grupo Corpo. In the forecast, look for some spotty rain overnight tonight. Temperatures about the mid-60s, almost there right now, in fact. And then for tomorrow, could reach the mid-70s. Plenty of gray, skimpy on the sunshine. Could stay generally cloudy on Thursday. 67 degrees now in Boston at 607. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation. For more than 95 years, supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society. More at mott.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. Here are some of the numbers associated with the Georgia indictment of former President Donald Trump. 19. That is the number of defendants in this racketeering case, including the former president. 41. That is the number of total felony counts. And to round things out, Four, as in, this is the fourth time the former president has now been indicted all since the month of March. And now we have two reporters joining me to discuss these charges and what comes next. Sam Greenglass from WABE in Atlanta and NPR correspondent Franco Ordonez is here in the Washington studio. Hey, y'all. Hey, guys. So, Sam, I want to start with you in Georgia, because I know you had a very late night last mm-hmm. night at the Fulton County Courthouse. Now that you've had more time with it and maybe even a little bit of sleep, what is the story that prosecutors there are trying to tell with this indictment? 
Juana, what Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis is trying to show here is that Trump and his allies conspired to unlawfully change the outcome of the 2020 election. And she's deploying Georgia's RICO law, which is often used to target organized crime, to outline this wide-reaching racketeering case. It's a case that wraps in defendants from the inner ring of Trump's circle, like former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, to relatively unknown players, like some of the false electors in Georgia. The alleged crimes, they range from forgery and false statements to computer theft, soliciting public officials to violate their oath. The indictment touches on more than 100 actions from Trump's infamous phone call pressuring Georgia's Secretary of State to attempts to unlawfully access voting machines in a rural Georgia county. We're dealing with a lot of defendants here, but of course, the former president is the biggest. Franco, you've been covering Trump. What have you heard from him so far? Well, I mean, he's going after the district attorney professionally and personally. He's calling her, quote, out of control and corrupt. And like in past indictments, Trump is calling this a winch hunt and says the accusations are rigged. What is new, though, is that he announced today that he plans to hold a press conference on Monday, and he says his team will release a detailed report on what he promises will be proof of election fraud in Georgia, which, of course, has been shown repeatedly to be false. And I'll just add that earlier today, the, go the Georgia governor, Brian Kemp, also dismissed this, stating that in the three years, no one has been able to provide any legal proof of fraud. That's right. Let's stay with Georgia, Sam. In addition to Governor Brian Kemp, what else are you hearing from Georgia? What has been the reaction in the state to these indictments? Many Democrats see these charges as the first steps toward accountability for people they see as having tried to chip away at their right to vote. Now, Secretary of State Raffensperger, a Republican whose call from Trump really sparked this investigation, said today that the most basic principles of a strong democracy are accountability and respect for the Constitution and rule of law. You either have it or you don't. Compare that to comments today from the chair of the Georgia Republican Party, who called the charges another weapon in the endless political wars. And I think, Juana, that that juxtaposition of these two comments, both from Republicans, really illustrates this ongoing rift in the Republican Party in Georgia and nationwide, which is a theme to watch in 2024. Yeah, and I mean, we can't can't forget that we're really getting deep into campaign season here. First Republican primary debate coming up soon. Franco, former President Trump remains the clear frontrunner for the Republican nomination. He has not been shy about discussing these charges with his supporters, with the Republican base. Do we think that this latest charge will alter his campaign strategy in any way? I mean, not shy at all. And those who I have spoke with who are close to Trump's team say the answer is basically no. I mean, to them, this is another example of a hyperpartisan prosecution by a prosecutor who is a Democrat. Brian Lanza, he's a former aide to Trump and remains in very close contact with the campaign. He says it doesn't change any of the dynamics. And he also makes clear what the stakes are for Trump. I mean, the strategy is simple. It's either the White House or the jailhouse. And so from Trump's line, you know, the line is in the sand. It's red. It's pretty clear. We need to win this. 
so we can you know, successfully push back against these federal prosecutions, most likely get the charges dropped, and, uh, and leverage whatever power we have over the states to drop those. And Lanza adds that, like before, the Georgia charges are only galvanizing supporters, and the team is raising a lot of money off the indictment. And Trump himself is using the case as just another example of why Republicans should nominate him to lead the party in a rematch against President Biden next year. Okay, so what about the other Republicans who are seeking the party's nomination? At this point, most of them have avoided direct confrontation with the former president. Yeah, they have been very quiet this time. Also, on this particular charge, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has not spoken out. Former Vice President Mike Pence hasn't said anything about these charges. Senator Tim Scott was confronted today on the campaign trail. He basically defended Trump, repeating his claims that the government is being weaponized Mm -hmm. against political opponents. And, Juana, we've talked a lot about this, about the power that Trump has over the base of the party and the fear that his rivals have about confronting Trump. It's going to be very interesting at next week's debate, and we still don't know if Trump's going to show up, but we do hope to get some clarity about which candidates are really willing to take on Trump, because so far his top rivals have not. Sam, last word to you in Georgia. What comes next for this investigation now that the charges are out? District Attorney Willis says defendants have until Friday, August 25th to voluntarily surrender. She says she'll ask for a trial within six months and that she wants to try all defendants together. I expect efforts from Trump to slow the case down, even move it to federal court. Considering the number of defendants, this Georgia case will likely stretch well into 2024. WABE's Sam Greenglass and NPR's Franco Ordonez in Washington. Thank you both. Thank Thank you. you. Two years ago today, the Taliban entered Kabul and swiftly took power. They began targeting people they viewed as enemies of the regime, including Afghans with American educations. And that includes dozens of Fulbright scholars. A small resettlement organization in Tennessee is trying to help them escape and eventually come to the U.S. From member station WPLN, Rose Gilbert reports. Hi, Rose. How are you? Hannah agreed to speak with me in the early hours of the morning, when her neighbors were asleep. We're using a pseudonym and withholding personal details to protect her and her family's safety. Hannah's a Fulbright scholar who went into hiding somewhere in Afghanistan almost two years ago, after she received a threatening letter from the Taliban. It accused her of working for foreigners and said that her death warrant was issued. Her family joined her in hiding after men came looking for Hannah at their home. These incidents and these declarations by them Uh, put us, put me in a very difficult situation. I wouldn't dare to step one foot outside. Fulbright is a prestigious cultural exchange program run by the U.S. State Department. Among other things, it offers scholarships that allow students from all over the world, including Afghanistan, to study at American universities. For Hannah, becoming a Fulbrighter was a long-time goal. She says she hoped to use what she learned in the U.S. to build a career and to advocate for women's rights in Afghanistan. Now, that achievement has put her in danger, and being in hiding this long has taken a severe toll on her and her family. Worst of all, the nightmares. You cannot escape the expected realities even after you sleep. Believe me, they will chase you even in your dreams. She is not the only one in this situation. Good morning uh, from Afghanistan. Mustafa is a Fulbright scholar and former professor at the American University of Afghanistan. 
When the Taliban took Kabul, he and his family fled to a small village, away from anyone who might recognize them. I, along with my family, uh, live in a small mud house with no proper electricity and with almost no access to the internet uh, and other basic needs of life. Uh, our kids are deprived of education and we fear torture, kidnapping and killing at any moment. While in hiding, Hannah and Mustafa have found an unlikely lifeline. Tennessee Resettlement Aid, a small nonprofit based in Nashville that has taken up their cause. Salim Tahiri is one of its founders. He says that Afghan Fulbrighters represent an important cultural and political relationship. They were the bridge between the U.S. government and Afghanistan government. And they're highly educated scholars, says Katie Finn, a co-founder of Tennessee Resettlement Aid. She says they could potentially benefit the U.S. and later a post-Taliban Afghanistan. If we leave them to die, nobody wins. If we bring them here and keep them safe, maybe they can return and end up helping others. The nonprofit is in touch with nearly 40 Afghan Fulbrighters. Most are in hiding and looking for a way out. Some have already fled to neighboring countries and started the asylum application process. But visas can take years to get approved, says Finn. So essentially, you'll, you'll be stranded in one of these other countries where you may also not know anybody and you have no money. Finn and Tahiri have been helping out by raising money and bringing in an immigration lawyer to answer questions. They've also been collecting testimonials from the scholars in support of a bill in Congress which would give these Fulbrighters special immigrant visas. The Fulbright program has not responded to requests for comment for this story. Hannah hopes that sharing her story will help raise awareness of what Fulbrighters are facing in Afghanistan. We want the U.S. government to know that we expect them to not leave us alone, to not let, let us die in the rusts and remains of this broken system just because we had an American education. Before the Taliban took power, Hannah played the harmonium in a band. She let me listen to a few of her performances. This recording is now years old. These days, it's too much of a risk for her to practice, even indoors. The Taliban has outlawed playing music in public and burned instruments. Still, Hannah dreams of one day being able to perform on stage again. For NPR News, I'm Rose Gilbert in Nashville. To all things considered from NPR News. And you're listening on 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us this evening. Coming up on Marketplace tonight, many Americans require a car to get to work, yet owning a car is becoming increasingly out of reach. And that problem is only getting worse, and there's no real central policy effort to try to address that problem. A look at the challenges to car ownership coming up on Marketplace. It starts at 6.30. A slide for stocks today. The Dow fell about a full percent. S&P and Nasdaq both dropped more than one and a tenth percent. The state's three casinos grossed about $99 million each in revenue last month. That includes card game and slot machine revenue from Plain Ridge Park, MGM Springfield, and Encore Boston Harbor. The take generated nearly $28 million in taxes for the state. Massachusetts collected nearly $6 million in taxes last month from online and in-person sports wagering. It's 620. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off. 
where college-age students and high school grads can experience a unique mixture of friendship, deep personal growth, and fun, improve confidence while gaining concrete academic and life skills, and practicing healthy habits. Fall semester starts September 18th. Semesteroff.com. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. A foggy and gray evening. Temperatures overnight tonight should be about the mid-60s. Some rain off and on overnight tonight. And for tomorrow, overcast again. A few shots of sunshine should rise to the mid-70s. 68 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. This summer's heat and wildfires have driven people indoors. So for the latest installment in our Living Better series, NPR's Ari Daniel looked into how best to improve your indoor air quality at home. 87-year-old Marvin Wilkenfeld leads the way into his small temporary apartment. I'm only going to be here for probably another two weeks. So things aren't quite as put away as he might like. But he's kind enough to show me around. There's a radio in each room and a couple guitars. I suppose it's tuned. Wilkenfeld spent a good chunk of his life running a natural food store in Manhattan. Then in 2004, he moved here to Newton, Massachusetts. The opportunity came for a much lower cost of living, and uh, I couldn't resist it. So Wilkenfeld moved into this government-subsidized apartment for low-income seniors run by the nonprofit Two Life Communities. He liked the place a lot, but Wilkenfeld has a dust and pollen allergy. I get very stuffy, and I'm very congested, constantly blowing my nose. He had the carpeting removed from his apartment. It helped, but still. There's always a certain amount of dust that comes in. You can feel it. It's kind of gritty. So when Two Life Communities announced their plans to renovate, Wilkenfeld was thrilled. This is your floor. This is my floor. He takes me to his corner apartment. They made the bathroom larger and the kitchen wider. So you can tell they're actually working. But uh, there's more to this project than just room resizing. Joe O'Toole is the facilities director. We just came off of two years of COVID, and ventilation is, is very key. He says that before the renovation, ventilation meant opening the windows. There was no real cleaning of the air. There was no filtration of the air within the units. Now, even when the windows are shut, every unit still gets a steady supply of outside air through what's called an energy recovery ventilator, a system of airflow that trades inside air for filtered outside air. It's taking air from in here, from the bathroom and the kitchen. And pushing it outside, along with any indoor air pollutants. Smoke, grease, sprays and stuff in the bathroom. And at the same time, it's bringing the same volume of outside air back into the unit. Another big change is the heating and cooling setup. The new system is called variable refrigerant flow that also provides air filtration. Resident Marvin Wilkenfeld says the changes are marvelous. I'm looking forward to moving in and knowing that my indoor environment is being cleansed and it's comfortable. 
But let's say you live in or manage a place where the air is your responsibility. It can be a lot to keep track of. Catherine Pruitt is with the American Lung Association. Actually, working on indoor air quality makes you kind of crazy. <laughs> because once you learn about possible pollutants, you can't stop noticing them. But she says there are three basic things you can do. The first is ventilation. In general, fresh air from outside is better than no fresh air from outside. Which means that opening up your windows is often the simplest way to disperse anything nefarious inside. Or in some homes, running your HVAC can bring in outside air. However, there are some times when the air outside is not a good idea to be bringing into your home. Just take the terrible air billowing off the wildfires in Canada this summer. In that case, you could turn to the second option at your disposal, filtration. And it's not any filtration. There is different filtration levels. This is Andrew Ibrahim from the University of Michigan. He's a surgeon and researcher with a background in architecture. In certain cases, like with wildfire smoke, it may make sense to use an indoor air purifier. Or for homes with air conditioners, you have a filter that you're supposed to be changing regularly. Like once a year or so. And Ibrahim suggests swapping the default filter out for a better one, like the MERV-13. The third thing you can do is something Catherine Pruitt calls source control. You know, keeping sources of contaminants out of the indoor environment if you can. That includes pests, mold, pollen. She says it can be as simple as leaving your dry cleaning outside long enough to air the solvents out. Earlier this year, the Centers for Disease Control updated its recommendations around building ventilation, suggesting that indoor air be exchanged at least five times every hour, which is well above that of the average household. Andrew Ibrahim. There are many infections that we've known for a long time, long before COVID, that transmit through the air. So circulating air reduces the likelihood of it transmitting between people Okay, I've got one final tip for you, and it concerns a potentially high pollution activity you might even be doing right now. Come with me to Cambridge, Mass. to meet John Macklemore. And this is Julia Child's house here. He's showing me around his neighborhood, and then he stops in front of his 6,000-square-foot colonial. We're remodeling to be both energy efficient and to think a lot about indoor air quality, both around chemicals and around uh, ventilation. Macomber is a lecturer at the Harvard Business School and used to run a construction company. He admits the mechanical retrofit of a house this large doesn't run cheap. But he's making a change that more and more people are considering, especially if they're renovating anyway. Ripping out the gas lines for heating and for cooking. It's kind of strange that people evolved over centuries to have open flames uh, where they live. But having gas in your home means potential gas leaks. And when you're cooking, unless you have perfect exhaust, then you're gonna have particulates and uh, compounds in the house. If you're not able to jettison your gas lines, there are still things you can do. Make sure you've got a working carbon monoxide detector and use the microwave, toaster oven, or a portable induction cooktop when possible. Ari Daniel, NPR News. Sometimes talented people have a way of finding each other. Take the rap duo Timbaland and Magoo. Their biggest single was Up Jumps the Boogie in 1997, though their collaboration started long before that. 
Melvin Barcliffe, or Magoo, and Timothy Mosley, then known as DJ Timmy Tim, met in high school in the area near Virginia Beach, Virginia. Speaking of talent finding each other, as teenagers, their associates in the region included a young Pharrell Williams and Chad Hugo, soon to be known as the Neptunes, and the multi-talented Missy Elliott. Eventually, Timbaland and Magoo found themselves trying to crack into music in New York City. Magoo says he helped convince his longtime friend to form a rap duo together. I wanted to be a producer. I talked him into being an artist, not just as a friend, but I always thought Tim was different and special. That's Magoo speaking to an oral historian for the William and Mary Digital Archive in 2013. Now, Timbaland, of course, went on to become a star producer in hip-hop, R&B, and pop music. Magoo made a few more records with his friend, but tired of the spotlight and stepped back from the music business. But in 2013, he said that starting from the moment he heard his first rap song at the age of six or seven, it would have his attention for the rest of his life. Rap is actually a communication, just like the news of the newspaper, but it's more vivid and more raw and more direct and more true. Melvin Magoo Barcliffe died last weekend, his family confirmed to the New York Times. On Instagram, Timbaland shared a tribute video and wrote, Tim and Magoo forever. Rest easy, my king. Like hip-hop itself, Magoo was 50 years old. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. A gray evening overnight tonight. Should have overcast skies. Temperatures about 65, not too far from where it is right now. Tomorrow, partly to mostly cloudy. A little bit of sunshine, but clouds mainly. Temperatures in the mid-70s. The Red Sox are in Washington, D.C. tonight to start up a three-game series with the Nationals. Start time is just past 7 o'clock. Nick Pavetta pitches for Boston against Josiah Gray for the Nationals. This is WBUR. It is 68 degrees now in Boston. Marketplace is coming up next at 6.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru, featuring the all-new, all-electric Subaru Solterra on Route 60 in Belmont and at citysidesubaru.com. It's a Subaru summer.